Hello and you are most welcome to episode 132 of the Game Pit Podcast, a much delayed episode. And if you're a usual listener, you would be expecting to hear Sean's dulcet tones introducing you into the next hour or two of board game chat. However, part of the delay for this episode is the fact that me and Sean cannot get our act together and I've been out the country and then he's been ill, then I've been out the country and he's been ill. So all of that has gone out the window. We expect him back for the next episode. He's getting better, bless him. He's had a very minor procedure on a part of his body that we shan't mention. It was his ear. To help me, however, rather than fly in solo in this episode, I have drafted in two fellow attendees of LobsterCon 17. And I'll introduce them first, then I'll tell you what we're going to be talking about. And with me is the author of GoPlayListen.com, the designer of some very mediocre games and also Pioneer Days, which is good, Chris Marling. <laughs> You're very welcome back to the pit. Thanks very much, and I'll be off now. <laughs> <laughs> well, Witless Wizards available in shops now. It is indeed, yep, and Europe Divided will be on Kickstarter soon. Oh, who's that coming from? That is coming from Phalanx, with co-designer David Thompson, and it's a post-Cold War game. So, an original theme for you. You were just ready with that spiel, weren't you? Right, that's all your plugs out of the way, no mentions anymore, <laughs> apart from abuse. Okay. And regular contributor and the soulful lover of the game pit, it's Puria. Hello, everyone, and clearly fourth draft for this weekend. <laughs> Not fourth. There's a lot of people unavailable. It's a busy time of year. <laughs> Can't believe you're giving yourself airs and graces already. Okay, lobster con. Paul, would you trade soulful lover for mediocre games design? <laughs> Ooh, I quite like my soulful eyes. I'm not sure willing to give that up yet. Puri is just a frustrated game designer. He's got a mechanism. He just can't make a game around it, which has never stopped Chris. <laughs> oh. Anyway, LobsterCon 17. What's LobsterCon? Uh, if you've listened, you'll know that part of London on board, the three of us are for a long time. And twice a year, people from London head down to the south coast of England at Eastbourne, take over a hotel and play games for three or four days. This is the 17th LobsterCon that's just gone past. And they very much hit a pattern whereby in this spring one, we play some of the new releases, but it's a quieter time for game releases. And we get to play lots of old favourites and traditions grow up and we play certain games again and again with the same groups of people and have a lovely time as opposed to the winter one where we talk about S and hotness. So these boys are in here and we're going to rattle through a mere 18 games that we played over the weekend at LobsterCon and kicking us off with a very tiny little release is Puria. Very short-winded and quick-to-play Space Corps from GMT. Released last year, this was uh, in terms of theme exactly up my street mainly because it's a space game without any of that combat nonsense. It's a real definite step down from High Frontier, but that's not a bad thing. In terms of the theme, the mechanics, it's very quick to play. Just very briefly, uh, individuals each have a tableau. We are exploring the solar system in one of three ages, starting with the inner solar system, moving on to uh, the wider solar system, and finally ending up exploring the multitude of galaxies out there. Sounds fascinating. <laughs> very quick to play that's why i stumbled i was too busy laughing very quick turns very quick to play very no yes indeed it is a good four hours with new players to teach uh playing all three ages i would say but as you're alluding to 
each actual turn in terms of uh, a unit of play is very quick. You definitely tend to know what you're going to do. You tend to know what you're going to do actually in the next three or four turns most of the time. And that kind of gives the game a real um, speedy feel, even though the actual game duration is, is quite long. I have to say, yeah, I've played it four times. It doesn't feel as long as it is when I've played it. It's a card-driven game in which you're going to be drafting from a market or top deck in and putting together simple actions like movement. You need a certain amount of movement to get somewhere or in order to build in certain places, it costs more, it costs less, and you build bases and you go on from there. And there's a bunch of goals that your company are trying to achieve in each of these ages. And all the time you're trying to generate profit and most profit at the end will win. Chris, before we get any deeper into it, have you played it at all? I haven't, no. And I think the question I would ask, I mean, I watched a little bit of a video of it because I thought, oh, it does look quite interesting. And I quite like it when GMT step out of their comfort zone and do something different. Two things. One was the box or the whatever says 30 minutes to four hours. So I'm wondering if there is actually a shorter version. And the other thing is hearing you and sort of watching the uh, demo of it, it did look like quick, snappy actions. But do they add up to enough to make it worth playing it for four hours? I'll jump in on the first one. It's split into three ages. You can play one age or two ages or put the first two together or the second two together. So if you just played the first age, it would probably in your first game take you 45 minutes down to half an hour when you'll know it. You would never want to play it once you know it, just the first age, because it's basically a tutorial. It's a tiny bit of making a little board for yourself, your own infra and getting asymmetrical. But other than to learn, not really. Puria, on the second point, did the simple actions add up to enough of a game? For me, they very much do, actually. And some of that's definitely the theme. I think that space theme works very well. Unlike High Frontier, where you spend hours trying to just get... Uh, this is the Dice Tower, so um, to the freaking end of anywhere. <laughs> In this one, everything is actually very achievable. You set yourself to goal to, uh, the goal to go to Mars, you get there. You set yourself the goal to, to, you know, be the first to colonize a particular area, you can do it. So I think that that's, creates a sense of achievement, actually. And I think for me, that's been a real driver why I've enjoyed it. Uh, I do feel like I'm getting to the point where I'd like to see a bit of something new, mainly because the game plays out very similarly. The maps are the same, the cards are the same. There might be room for a bit of an expansion there for me, just to keep things alive, but... It, it really does feel very satisfying building up your tableau and kind of getting out there into space. Right, I'm going to take you on on two of the points you made there, Puria. Apparently, you've just worked out GMT's secret to success. Make a game that's a bit similar to an awful game and everyone will go, well, at least it's not that game. <laughs> at least it's not High Frontier. <laughs> so therefore, it must be a good game. I'm not sure it's the best argument I've ever heard. And I, you basically said what I was going to say. After my first play, I was like, oh, I enjoy this. This is great. This is new. This is simple. It's a nice challenge. After the second game, that's when I was getting used to the third age is very different to the first two and where a lot of the scoring takes place as well. And if you're not aware of that going into it, then you're going to be really in trouble. On the third game, I was like, okay, where's the change in this? I'm doing exactly the same stuff I did more or less to the previous game. And after my fourth game, I sold it. Yeah, and I'm not sure I can defend that. It's something that's going to need some way of refreshing it. The tiles, for example, so just um, for those who haven't played it, uh, as you explore the solar system uh, and you land on planets or or sites, uh, you can flip tiles, which will represent the various resources available uh, to that site. That 
set of tiles is not huge, um, especially in the first age, for example. Yes, it is a tutorial, but um, you, you tend to see the same things over and over again. I think that's probably where a lot of that frustration comes from. As you say, the story arc of the game tends to be the same. So um, I'd love to see this either expanded specifically in terms of the game itself as an expansion or maybe applying this mechanic to to something else. Because I think, as you say, anytime GMT actually kind of tones it down a little bit from their kind of heavy war games, you get some really good stuff. I think we're going to talk about Time Crisis in a minute. But for me, this is another great hit from GMT in terms of streamlining and taking out a lot of those rules, uh, heavy elements that kind of bog down the games for me uh, in the rest of GMT's catalogue. So one thing I'd say to that is the reason it gets repetitive so quickly is there multiple paths to victory or are they just sort of so similar mechanically that they don't become that interesting when you try them out? It's, it's the second one. It's There's alleged multiple paths, but you're doing exactly the same thing every time to, to do it. You're moving and you're building and you're moving and you're building now. Where you build, you might be trying to build four past Jupiter or you might be trying to build at Uranus and Pluto and, and Neptune. But in effect, you're still building three or four bases and they, it's the same mechanism. Also, I found the game quite static. People can build up an infra, as I was saying. So people can, move, for example, build up a strong movement tableau. But every other player can use that. And all the person gets is the draw of one card as a reward for that. So when people start having their infra set up, I kind of look at it and I go, well, Puri's ahead of me in movement. I'll just carry on using his. And then it became even flatter for me. So, yeah, it got same. It's got loads of praise and Puria was giving it high praise there. And yet saying after, I don't know how, how many games he's played of it, three or four maybe, he needs more. And that for me is not a very good game. That's a game that was did something a bit different but didn't do enough with it. Or is it a game designed for the current market, which is maybe a conversation Ooh, for another day? Oh, check mm, you out. Follow an episode. He's <laughs> 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 just trying to get back on the show to plug your game. Well, yeah, the, amount, the amount we're getting paid, we, we want to get back as often as we can, can't we? Is it? If I'm not getting paid, <laughs> my you lot are getting paid. Let's be clear uh, on that. Okay. <laughs> Speaking about earning your money, there's a game that I got last Essen that I was interested in, and I did a pit stuff on it, and, uh, and then I put the game away, and about two days later, I've forgotten completely how to play it. And then Chris brought it up. He was going to bring it along. And I made him teach me a game that I'd made a teaching video for. And it was prehistory. And thank you for doing it, Chris. That's not a problem. And I'll just have to say, I didn't use your video to help me learn the game. And, and nor should you. <laughs> the game was prehistory. And it's designed by Attila Sogi. And as Ronan said, it came out in 2018 at Essen last year. And it's a heavier Euro game, which blends action selection, resource management, set collection, and a bit of area control. Anyone that's hearing that little list of um, game mechanics will think, well, there's nothing new there. But what it does very cleverly is there are sort of three sections to a round that you're playing in. Two of them are action selection. But what you're doing is you're choosing the same actions twice in a row, but you're getting to them in completely different ways. And things you do in the first part of the round will then influence how well you'll be able to do the same actions again in the second part of the round. And it's a nice little twist on sort of standard mechanics. And that's kind of what I'm always looking for a game nowadays. It's quite long. What I think our game maybe lasted about three hours, which is, I mean, I would think it's always going to be at least two, even with a couple of players. I think compared to a lot of heavier Euro games, I enjoyed the fact that it felt more tactical than strategic and 
you were having to deal with what the game threw at you rather than a lot of the heavier Euro games where you're planning sort of three days in advance what to do next. But um, Ronan, what did you think? I think that it's clear from the first two game introductions I'm going to be on my toes today because Puria gave all theme and no mechanisms and you just gave all mechanisms and no theme. (laughs) (laughs) So the story is you're running a prehistoric tribe, right? And you're doing these different actions to paint caves or go hunting or go fishing or or have ceremonies or gather food. Now, all of that is very Euro, very abstracted, but that's the story of what you're trying to do. And then you take those actions onto... actually a second area, a second board in which you're moving out and expanding and building camps and getting more influence there. And there's almost kind of two separate games going on as well as the two ways of doing the same actions. And it sounds like a lot. And when you say there's a heavy Euro there, this is kind of why, and I'll say I really enjoyed our game of it and very much looking forward to more games of it, is that I felt the game was giving me limitations rather than obstacles. In a lot of the heavier Euros that I moan about, there are obstacles that I have to, hoops I have to jump through and poles I have to weave around and a tunnel I have to run through. And in the end, I get the thing I'm after. In prehistory, I could get the thing I wanted in one action. It's that my actions were limited, the way I could choose the actions were limited, and it was very rare there was an optimal choice. I was choosing from several suboptimal ones and making my own path and reacting to what the game gave me rather than fighting against the rules. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, probably the main thing I disagree on there is there are two areas of the of the game where you can get bonus cards and these will score you. One will score you points during the game, one will score them at the end of the game. They're both very much tied to particular ways that you might have decided to play the game and they clear out at the end of each round. So if you don't quite happen to get the right stuff when the best card for you is out there, it's gone and that can re- that can be really costly. So in a game where it's suggesting you try and choose a route and go down it as well as you can, it's, it is then doing that thing that you've just mentioned of, you know, sort of cutting you off from being able to do it at, at its best. Yeah, the, the cards did feel wonky. And it's a case of if the cards that come out in the first couple of rounds for what ends up being your strategy and you didn't know that was what your strategy was going to be because you're still reacting if they've come out early and they've gone they've gone you will end up screwing fewer points than other players and i agree with you about the cards that that was definitely not my favorite thing about it another concern is that but i think this is really just because it was our first game for the three of us is the lack of interaction really we weren't really following what each other were doing so much i mean it was clear i was fishing a bit and you were doing a gathering but in terms of how we were laying down because the way that you spend cubes to take actions sets up actions for the summer so in spring you set up summer and things like that we weren't so much watching each other chris it's true and i think that's probably where the heavier part of the game comes in i think it's going to take perhaps brighter gamers than us who <laughs> will probably take us about 20 games Not to get to, to that find. level. Yeah. <laughs> no, <laughs> because the bit where we were, yeah, say so the action, the cubes you choose to use to do actions in the start, you can use any cubes, but you have to be aware that the cubes you use are then going to be available for people to choose. And then they are important in the actions you do in the second part. So I think there's interesting things to be done there, but as my only other fear with the game was that certain elements of the game did well one the fishing one that you did of having played it since is incredibly strong at the start of the game and useless later whereas getting out on the board and claiming positions feels like a late game mechanism so while the game seems to suggest there's loads of different things you can do and lots of paths to victory i think doing certain things at certain points in the game you either 
everyone kind of needs to get involved in those. I'm not sure that's a weakness because I very much enjoyed our play as well and the ones I've had since. Yeah, it is a slight concern. Okay, you're kind of forced to fish and then forced to explore. I think so, yeah, at the start yeah. and end. Okay, yeah. that would be a concern for my first game. Puri, have you got any comments for us? Yeah, I haven't played this, but one question I kind of had looking at it. Your description reminded me a little bit of Rise of Empires by Martin Wallace, where you're kind of using the action selection and then have to do everything in reverse. Especially if you're playing this for the first time, can it feel a bit for new players that you're being kind of, not pigeonholed, but kind of once you're on a track, you kind of have to follow that through in terms of the strategy for the round? Can you screw yourself out if you screw up the first phase for the second phase? No, it's it's, it's not as railroaded as, as Rise of Nations. Yeah, I think for me, what, what stops that happening, which we haven't mentioned, is that in the first phase, each of the, I think there's six different actions that are available, but each one of them can only be done twice in total by all players combined. So if Ronan decides to go fishing, if he does it once and then I do it once, then no one else can do that in that first part of the game. And then when it comes into the second one, there are always ways to mitigate what you do in the later part of the game. So, And the turn order reverses as well from spring to summer. So if I've got first yeah, dibs right. in spring, I'll be going last in summer. So I can't dominate it for the whole year. Absolutely. So yeah, it does. It has got some clever mechanisms in place to, to sort of solve that potential problem. Really promising one game for me for prehistory. Looking forward to playing more. Rachel was the third player. She loved it. Definitely going to get more games in because she's been clamouring for it. Chris, your thoughts after a couple of plays? Yeah, I'm still enjoying it. Even the concerns that I've got, I think it'll be more just a case of tactically pointing that out to new players. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to more plays too. Beautiful. Now, I'm going to introduce something very similar to those Euro games that we've been talking about there. Something very deep and thinky. And, uh, it's Batman! No, 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 no. You're so 60s. <laughs> it's 2019 from Monolith, the spiritual successor to Conan. And I've played it three times now, but at LobsterCon itself, I sat down against Puria and Sam and Mike, and I was controlling Bane and his hoodlums who were trying to set bombs in the sewers underneath Gotham. And those guys had a choice of heroes, as in most scenarios, you can choose uh, the heroes you wish to use. I went up against Batman and Good Red Hood. And were you Catwoman? Cannon fodder. Cannon fodder, yeah. Were you Cannon fodder. Yeah, yeah, Catwoman. <laughs> <laughs> the bad Catwoman, not the good one that I told you to choose. Um, so the, it's scenario-based. This is the scenario we played in which Bane is trying to blow up Gotham. There are many, many other ones. There's a whole huge book that comes with it. There's lots of books that come in that box, some of them of more better quality than others. We'll get to that. How you play is that each of the heroes has some energy available to them. At the beginning of their turn, they choose whether they're going to be active and take actions and they get a small amount of energy back, or they're going to be inactive and just defend and they get much more energy back, looking to build up for better turns later on. Hopefully, they then spend those energy cubes each turn in five different actions. They can move around the board, they can punch, they can shoot if they've got an appropriate weapon, and then they can do thought or manipulation actions, and those are going to be scenario-dependent, for example, in this one. The thought actions were to do with laptops that could be used to either be blown up or to uh, prime bombs, or the manipulation actions were to get rid of the bombs, which is what those guys had to do. They had to get rid of, I believe, three or four of the five. I can't remember exactly. And then for my characters, only certain ones of them could interact with these things, and my manipulation would be in order to prime the bombs, because if they weren't primed by a certain point, then I would not win the game. 
for each of the heroes, they've got different attributes which will affect how they can do those five actions. They might have automatic defense. They might have bonuses on hacking. When they do an attack that's successful, they might get a free another attack if there's another enemy in the same area as them. And also, a lot of them have got a choice of different equipment. So that as well as choosing a different hero at the beginning of each scenario, you can choose to equip them slightly differently depending upon what your goals are. For the baddie, I have a very similar energy system, only I get a set amount back every turn. And then I can spend those to activate what's called my river. There's tiles for each of the groups of hoodlums that I've got, and they'll move from right to left. And the furthest one on the left is always the cheapest to activate for me, but when it activates, it goes to the right end and pushes all the others along, making them all cheaper, but itself now the most expensive. And of course, Bane is in there, and I can activate Bane and have big turns with them. I can also use my energy for defending. You can use energy to re-roll dice. It's all dice-driven. Everything you're trying to do be it combat or mechanically anything else and in this game Puria I kicked your butts and it was fantastic I'm going to do the undiplomatic thing and just blame Batman (laughs) (laughs) who abandoned us to go go have a lovely saunter in the park while we were slaughtered Batman decided his name was on the box and he was going to do whatever he liked and he didn't care that the other two were getting stuck in corners swamped by thugs (laughs) He was like, oh, look at that one person in the corner. I can beat him up. Look, I'm Batman. Like, <laughs> he was Lego Batman rather than proper Batman. <laughs> very, very dark grey. <laughs> um, very interesting in terms of my opinion on this, because the more I think about it, the more I'm drawn straight through the middle. The production, the figures, everything's actually very, very nice. The amount of stuff you get, typical kind of Kickstarter driver. But when we are actually playing it, there were two things that really stopped me kind of getting immersed in the game. The map was the first, especially when you told me. So just for reference, the map's got various areas in it divided up, very clever line of sight. But there's various rules in terms of jumping down ledges, moving through walls, all that kind of stuff. All of which they've chosen not to print on the mat, which I thought was because it changed from scenario to scenario. But if I'm correct, you mentioned that actually it's always the same rules, which made it even more frustrating to see it wasn't printed on the map. And that, in conjunction with the map, that was very difficult to read. I know it's thematic, it's, you know, um, kind of has a very p- particular perspective, but it was very, very distracting. I genuinely spent half that first game just trying to get my head around where we could move to. And, and that already kind of put me in a, in a slightly negative mindset. Yeah, there's, there's specific rules for, for each map, and they're in the scenario book, but there are specific scenario rules as well. So you constantly have to flick back to the map page and then back to the scenario page then back to the map page. Now, the answer is, of course, there's going to be printouts somewhere that you print out yourself, those, those guides to the map. And I get what you're saying is the problem is you can't look at the board and make decisions and, and flow and go, okay, if I do this, I do that, I spend that energy. You have to keep on referring back. But that's a problem throughout the whole game because each hero has got all these different attributes and some of the villains have as well and they affect how it works. And then the map affects how it works. And there's these little stumbles and they have not made it easy to play. And what sounded as Batman running in and beating things up and going, look how cool I am, exactly what I did because I played as Conan in my first game of Conan and I did that and we lost because it's a tactical game. And you have to make proper choices and you have to work as a team and you have to look at what's going on. You have to look at which enemies are where and what can they do and what they're capable of. And not being able to read the map prevents you from making proper decisions. So you just sort of go, there's a point where you go, oh, well, whatever, I don't care. I'm just going to run over there and give it a pop. Can I interject to that point? That's because it's Batman or Conan. I mean, why 
I, I was sitting on the table next to you guys while you were playing this. Our game of turn and taxis was having more shout out loud, chatting, laughter, conversation. All I heard was the occasional bad Batman slash Bane. I didn't know which one you were trying to impersonate, Ronan. I'm sure it was one or the other. I was uh, being Bane! You, we barely heard a peep out of you. And it's like, you know, I, I sort of think, well, have these guys watched the films? There's quite a lot of action. There's quite a lot of... You know, Hold on. There's not a lot of comedy. It's not Benny Hill, is it? They, no, they, it was the no... same as in the comic books. It's serious. It's Batman, okay? It's very grim. <laughs> yeah, very grim sounds about right. <laughs> very, very serious. <laughs> I knew you were never going to want to play it, Chris. In fact, I was surprised Puri agreed to play it, to be honest with you. I love that river mechanic. I think it's so clever. And spoiler alert, that's what I want to see in some other game, because I think that choice that you get in terms of what to activate and the costs escalating I think is, is really intriguing now of course as a player you don't get to see any of that and it kind of hinted at that already you you mentioned the rules on the map and you kind of hinted at this already but as a player I then had to remind myself of all the freaking rules I had as a character all of which are icons which don't mean a thing to me and some of them are very very similar to each other yeah, and and you know, I genuinely would have to sit there with a printout for the map rules and a printout for my character to make any sense of what I'm doing on a turn. And it's a real shame because I think I I can absolutely see the fun and and kind of well, I'm sure I'd have more fun as as Batman <laughs> than Cannon Fodder. <laughs> <laughs> the the objective based stuff, you know, if that rules complexity wasn't there, I think I would have had a great time. And you know, not to mention that all of the whole f-ing weekend, I rolled like a again dice tower. But <laughs> you rolled like a dice up. tower. <laughs> no. I'm gonna have to get myself. I'm gonna have to get myself a graphic novel of this cannon fodder character because he sounds <laughs> It's definitely Batman and friends in that scenario. <laughs> but I told you guys not to choose the two you chose. They were rubbish. But anyway, I had to set you up with decent characters. I think that it's a shame. We haven't mentioned how terrible the rulebook is. It's absolutely beyond awful it's just <laughs> just stinks it's just almost useless i can't believe how it was structured it doesn't make any sense whatsoever lunacy okay i think that if you care sit down and play three or four times and then all those things go away and you do start clicking in and you do start making the decisions and then it is mechanically a good game it can't always be balanced scenario swing this way and swing that way because of so much going on but as a game, I have really, really enjoyed playing it three times, and I'm going to play it more. And everyone who comes near me gets Batman thrown at them, and they go, "Can't play Batman! Can't play Batman!" And sometimes <laughs> do I get I to be Batcow next time? I will consider that. <laughs> right, that was Batman. I really liked it. Puria, yeah, not so much. And Chris would not play it if it was the last game on Earth. Oh, that's not true. That's not true. I, I, I'd play anything once. Okay, Chris will play it once so that he's got an informed bad opinion of it. (laughs) (laughs) Puria, we sat down on Sunday morning pre-booked with Mr. Martin Griffiths, Time of Crisis guru, and he's got an early copy of the expansion for Time of Crisis, and we played it. Yeah, so I'm not going to rehash the base game because I think we've covered this on a previous... We can rehash it quickly, the fact that it's 4th century, 3rd century Rome, 3rd century Rome, and we're families and you're trying to be emperor and it's a map of Europe and it's card-driven and it's deck-building and you different three different currencies from your cards and they allow you to take political, popular and military actions and you're trying to dominate the map both politically and militarily to score points. That's about it. 
Yeah, and just to add, unlike other deck builders, you get to choose your cards rather than have to draw a blind off the deck, which gives you a lot more agency than you would a normal deck builder. But you'd always get stuck with your terrible cards at the end because you have to use all the cards before you cycle <laughs> through your whole deck and you pick up your hand of two blue ones, a yellow one and a red one. I go, what, what was I doing last turn? Anyway... Especially because you're always one short of that thing. You're do. <laughs> yeah. I think it's fair to say we both like the game. That hasn't changed. And I think for me, the expansion did a lot of good things, actually. So maybe to go a bit more detail into what the expansion brings, you firstly have some solar rules, which um, I personally don't care about much, but I'm sure has made lots of people in GMT fan base happy. The real juice of the expansion is around the, in effect, doubling the number of cards available to draft from. If I understood correctly, you can either play in terms of replacing the whole set or, uh, which is the way we played, you can mix them together and then have both sets available to you. But each stack is actually shuffled together. So they will alternate randomly between uh, original cards and expansion cards. And just that new pool of cards really felt like it gave you a bit more option in terms of uh, how you might approach the game in a very good way without actually increasing any of the overheads in terms of rules because everything's just on the cards. You still have the same number of cards to draft from, which means you're not having to think about twice the set there. Some of the stuff you could do just felt new and different in a very good way. The last thing the game introduces, which is something we didn't really get to experience much, is just new ways of being emperor. So in the traditional game, you would sit in Rome being a happy little emperor In this new expansion, you can also choose to be a provincial emperor, uh, having your capital somewhere out in the country, or alternatively, you can stomp around the board as military leader, um, something which sounds intriguing and also just adds a bit of spice without adding uh, too much overhead. So from my perspective, I really enjoyed our game. I think the expansion has done a lot of good things without introducing complexity or overhead. And for those who enjoy the game, I think this is definitely a no-brainer. Chris, have you played Time of Crisis? I haven't, no, and it is one I'd like to play. Before this, as I hadn't played it, I had a bit of a look at sort of low rankings and what people were um, complained about it. And is this so, going to be a BGG comments thing? Because I love a bit of BGG comments. <laughs> it is. It is. Two point yeah, and, This thing killed my cat. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I saw someone playing this and didn't like the look of it. One out. Yeah. I got, I got sent a dented copy of. <laughs> yeah. But my favourite one of that recently was that there was something from a Brazilian company and someone had given it one out of ten because they backed a political political party in the last election. So they gave their game one out of ten, which I thought oh. was special. No, it was these are probably GMT based comments and, and I don't want to make I don't want that to sound as if I've got any problem with people that like GMT games, because I haven't, because I quite I like quite a lot of them myself. But they did feel the, the comments sounded a bit kind of GMT fan based. Because the criticism. That both were... of you now sounded judgy about GMT fans. I'm very no, sorry, no, GMT fans. More... In the last three minutes, <laughs> Perry has been a bit like, I'm sure some GMT fans will like solo rules. All right. <laughs> no, this is very much a thing that I, I, I was just wondering if it was true. But both of you people were saying that the theme is just massively pasted on and doesn't give you any feel of sort of Roman times. And I guess when someone picks up a GMT game, they're, they're hoping for some sort of thematic experience. I mean, unless you're talking about, you know, I wasn't able to simulate the 3rd century BC year 2 um, invasion of Rome, the the level of immersion was absolutely fine for me. So that's at least personally not something I felt. My problem was that Puria was talking in Republican era Latin, which was just completely just threw it. 
<laughs> I hate it when he does. <laughs> it's, it's a euro. It's as a euro game, which is almost it. No, it is what it is with yeah. with some conflict. It's quite thematic uh, for a war game. For it's not thematic, but you have to judge right. it for what it is. And GMT don't just make war games. So no, it's true. But it was say this isn't me. This is a, no, this, no, these are the comments people. We're, we're, no, but we're you're making. representing those people, Chris. So we're allowed to have a go at you. It's all fine. <laughs> so, and I guess part of that, the other big criticism seemed to be that there was no differentiation between the players. But again, that may be another, you know, people expecting a war game issue. Yeah, it is not. You're right. That's a design feature rather than anything else, I think. Um, but you very quickly become asymmetric according to how you build your own deck and your own goals. And one of the things Puri said about the expansion, you can build towards being a populist emperor or a military emperor or an, uh, a normal regular style emperor. And you can do that via your deck. Uh, and it soon becomes asymmetric. And then there are different types of um, invaders, barbarians that come in different areas. And depending upon how you're getting threatened to your heartland will affect how you build. Because they can be a chance to uh, to federate them and get them in as extra troops. You can fight them and score loads of points. They're not necessarily a bad thing, but they will slightly dictate your play. Because there's an event deck, because you roll two dice at the beginning of each turn. And is it on a seven an event happens? Is it the robber mm-hmm. and Catan? Yeah, so, uh, so that event deck is going to mix things up from turn to turn in terms of playing with this expansion it had been about 14 15 months since i played and that was too long i thought i remembered the game more than i did it we were lucky i think martin was there because he guided us through and i certainly didn't think that i needed an expansion until i played with it and now i need the expansion (laughs) because it does what puria said it adds more choice without complexity and without really very many overheads at all and it's a brilliant expansion if you like the game, you're going to like the expansion. If you don't like the game, you're not going to like it. It's the way it rolls, isn't it? I think in terms of our actual play, we didn't obviously explore it as well as we could have because three of us were relearning the game and not quite on board. So I'd like to play it again quite quickly. I think the board position was quite rigid, mostly because the best player took Emperor early and then we weren't good enough to respond to that because there should be some nip and tuck and give and take and it should be, as it was historically, the Emperor ship if that's what you call it, a ship in which you're the emperor, it should be flying around from family to family. And it wasn't really happening because we weren't good enough to attack him. And then eventually I got emperor. And then, of course, there was a bloody event brought out, an upstart emperor. I didn't even get my emperor points for that, which was really irritating. And something that I would have, if I was more on top of the game, I would have been aware of and maybe played slightly differently. And a funny thing about it is that it took us two, two and a half hours to play. And I wanted the game to be longer. Because I thought, oh, there's more stuff going to happen here and it's, it's still developing and I can see where people are, are, are going. And that's after two and a half hours, maybe. And I was like, that's unusual. But I also I think that comes down to me and that I have to realise this is a race. When someone's hit 60 points and they're emperor, this game ends and I have to have got everything that I want to do done. So I'm glad that I feel like that at the end of each game and it makes me want to play again. Yeah, and I think that's, from my perspective, probably just symptomatic of the fact that we're probably trying to build up too much to do something. We're, we think we need a big stack. We, you know, we need to build up to this big event. Whereas I think a good player clearly just kind of goes for it. And as you say, there'll be a lot more dynamic action on the board. And as you say, every single time, I've wanted the game to be like ten turns longer. That's really encouraging given how long the gameplay is. Yeah. So Time of Crisis, the new expansion, really enjoyed it. We're going to stick on a Roman theme with the uh, unusually named Chris. 
The Romans, which is a game coming soon. It's already been on Kickstarter, I think, and it's actually going to be hitting the shops, I think, at UK Games Expo and afterwards. It's called The Romans, yeah, and it's by the Ragnar Brothers. It's a actually quite strongly themed game. It's a worker placement game with a little bit of dice combat. And what makes the game stand out is that each player's got their own map of the area that the Romans conquered. And you start in the very middle of Italy and you've got like a small garrison there. And all your maps are essentially look the same, but they're all slightly different. So you'll be sending out your troops and you'll be taking over provinces. And while all our provinces will look the same in terms of the map, if I take over a particular one, that may give me a particular type of resource. But if you take it over on your map, you'll take over a different type of resource. Is this Romans of the Multiverse? Yes, okay, exactly. Yeah, right. They've got, I can't remember what they call it, but they call it a particular type of game. They've made a few of them in a row now where you're all basically in parallel, essentially in parallel yeah, universes. Yeah, Nina and Pinto, seeing, that was one of them, wasn't it? That was another one that did the same thing, yes. So I, I was a little bit sceptical about it, but it works incredibly well. And I think what really makes it is dice in a game I love. But in a kind of dice combat game, I always struggle with them because, you know, I might put myself in a brilliant position and then you're in a rubbish position and I roll a one and you roll a six and you win. And it's okay. Well, why did I bother doing all this stuff leading up to that point? What uh, this Batman. does. <clears throat> what this does. What this <laughs> that does wasn't just the dice. You just sucked. Sorry, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> what this game does incredibly cleverly is each person, each person maps out their turn. Everyone's going to be doing a slightly different things. So I might be attacking Germany. You might be attacking Mesopotamia. And we, I might be sending a massively strong force. You might be sending a really risky small force, just hoping you get a good roll. But then it's right. Like, okay. So it's now time to have the battle. We've all done all our actions. Then one person rolls a dice and that dice roll affects all of the battles. So if I'm in a very strong position, you're in a very weak one. If the dice roll is very even, I'm going to be fine, but you may lose your battle. It's such a simple mechanism. And you just don't sort of see it in games. And you think, oh, wow, why haven't people, more people done that? It's got a lot of theme. As you go through the five sort of eras of how the Roman Empire expanded and subtracted, you have different Roman generals who were the actual ones who are using, you're choosing one. So, for example, if you choose Hadrian, you get a free wall. You know, it's that kind of thing. So they are thematically tied. The game's are really long. And it is quite swingy, as Ragnar Brothers games tend to be. But yeah, I absolutely thoroughly enjoyed it. It's a shame that art was by the Ragnar children. Well, that's. <laughs> I found it reminiscent of Asterix. And so maybe you have to be a person of a certain age to appreciate that. But I very much enjoyed that. Oh, brother, I read all the Asterix graphic novels. I got them all out of the local library and I did not like that art. <laughs> In fact... It, the biggest, biggest problem they're going to face is trying to sell a game of this length with that look. I mean, it, it um, feels, they, yeah, they it feels like a bit of a mismatch, doesn't it? Five hundred twenty-four backers on Kickstarter is is for them for a, a company that's got a name is very, very low. Yeah, this it's not really an issue for me. I mean, I suppose I've always been someone who, if if they start playing a game and enjoy it, then the art disappears. I know I fully understand that if their problem is going to get people to play it mate like I would never have given this a second look apart from you played it with the guys down there you were saying how much fun it was they were saying it's fun and you've got me interested and I'm like right now now the next time I get a chance I want to play the Romans if that had not happened and because there's only 524 backers it's not going to happen that often 
it's just not going to, it's going to die. The market is too swamped. You know, from what you told me about the game, what I, Joe, what I thought was, if you put a Roxley look on this, if you put a Stonemaier look on this, and you put that on Kickstarter, you'd multiply those backers by 10. Yeah, and maybe that's why, I mean, there is talk that this is going to be the last game coming out of the Ragnar Brothers studio. And maybe, maybe there's an element of that. Maybe they feel that, you know, the, the whole thing has, has moved on to somewhere that they're not really, you know, comfortable. And I'm, I'm not sure. You, don't, you, you, you sort of have to speak to them. Yeah, I hope people do give it a go. I really do. I mean, I've played it four times now, including Solo, which is actually a fantastic Solo game. Puri is going to judge you in a second for that. <laughs> and well, you know, as a as a game reviewer, I do need to try it at as many player counts as possible. So I always, I'm not. Hold on, let me. I've got. I'm taking notes here. What else should I be doing? <laughs> <laughs> Ronan, you're too far gone. <laughs> But yeah, I really, I, I would, I would thoroughly recommend people play it. But I mean, if there's, yeah, I'm happy to answer other questions other than dodgy artwork. But, uh, <laughs> I, I, I am a that bit of an dice mechanism you're talking about. I really, it removes that sense of the unfair from it. Yeah. In that, okay, definitely. if it's a, if it's a high roll and we both, we both, at least we both lose. Okay, I've invested more in this battle, but the, we both lost. It's when I roll high, you roll low. You win with nothing and I lose with a lot. That's when it's like, oh, no. And th- you're Precisely. right. This is a great way to get rid of that because people, they like to take a risk. They don't like to take unfair risks in games. Yeah. And just to give a little bit more on other mechanisms, because I kind of glossed over it a bit. It's a worker placement game, but each player starts with four senators who are essentially your workers, but they're at four different levels, one, two, and three, and four. And there are actions on the board. Each person can go into each of those action sections once during their turn. There's a space for each of the different numbers. So if I go into space four, I have to use my level four senator. He goes in there and does the action incredibly well. Once that space is gone, no matter what senator you use, they're only going to be able to go into a lower version of that action. So I might end up with only having two level three senators left. I really have to go and get some troops but the only, only the level one space is left in a level one space. So I'm getting very poor value for him, but I really need those troops. It's a very nice way of bringing a little bit of competition into a game that is multiplayer solitaire because you've all, you've all got your own map. You're all doing your own thing. You, you're not affecting other people, but you are thinking about what they're doing, which is a nice thing. And then when you've got the dice rolls, you're all expanding using these dice rolls, trying to get around the board. So one person's rolling their dice, so you've got fantastic interaction there, just on a players around the room rather than in the game element. And another great thing about it is once you've expanded across the board, all of those t- terrible local yokels from England and wherever else get to come and have a bash at you back. And again, you go in turn order and you're choosing where you're going to be attacked. And you can re- that can have such a massive effect on the game. It's like, well, okay, if I choose here, that's better for me, but... If I leave that in, that's really going to hamper someone else because of the way they've expanded their territory. So there's really nice decisions there. And again, when those roles happen, again, it's one role that communally affects everybody. Yeah, while some of the game is a bit heads down and you're thinking about your own stuff, the important stuff, these big dice rolls, are done in this communal way and everyone's cheering and everything. Yeah, it makes for a really good atmosphere. That should have been on the Kickstarter page. That speech... And they'd have got more than 524 backers. <laughs> you, in person, you taught me and want to play this. On the podcast, you've taught me and want to play it again. They need to get your UK Games Expo on some sort of a, a soapbox, just giving it large to get people over and playing and spread the word of the Romans. 
It's a solid game. <laughs> we got that. <laughs> we got that. Okay. <laughs> My next one is Inuit. It's a 2019 release, just coming out now from Board and Dice, in which each player is running their own village in a card drafting game. Now, you start with one of each different type of person. People fulfill roles within your village. And what that means is the number of people you have in a particular role will allow you to draft that many of that type of card that they're attached to. So, for example, if I've got elders, the number of elders I have, that allows me to draft people from the communal offer that's in the middle of the table you have to add to this communal offer each turn you can choose to add more if you've got scouts you start with one scout when you use your elders to draft people those people can go into any of the roles so if i choose to make them scouts then the next time when it comes around to my turn i can choose to reveal more cards into the middle giving myself more choice but obviously giving the other players after me more choice as well I can make these people I take into my village particular hunters to go after orca or to go after seals. I can turn them into uh, priests to do rites and rituals, which give me special actions and powers and scores me points for various things. And each of the people that you bring in have got a different colour. There are four different suits, different colours in the game. There are adults and children. Children have got two colours. Adults have got one. All the adults of your colour that are in, in any village on the board at the end of the game are going to score you points. However, any cards that you've got in your own village that don't match your colour are going to cost you points. You're also then going to score points for the game that you've got, for certain rites and rituals, and you're going to add them all together in a very quick card drafting game, which is very attractive, looks nice, has got a great board presence, and Puria, you and I played this together. It gave you a bit of a vibe from uh, Port Royale push your luck game yes in port royale you had the characters that kind of gave you a bit of an engine but in this just kind of being able to directly build your engine as you go through it felt really nice as you say the artwork's great it's maybe not something i need to play all the time but it felt very pleasant i may have possibly ignored some of the end game scoring minus <laughs> points <laughs> talk me through again how it works if you've got cards of other people's colors in your village at the end of the game because i didn't have any so i don't know how that works <laughs> yeah you might have gotten minus 20s <laughs> <laughs> i can't believe you. i was trying to break the game obviously uh, testing, just you know. you know as a game reviewer you've got to explore the edge cases right which yeah good edge case what is the thing you said there about building the engine one of the things that i liked about the engine was the fact that it wasn't just a constant acceleration there are cards within there that force you to move people around or force you to turn people over you can use hunters to turn people over you can build an engine with other people's colors then degrade it again and pull them out or, or move them around or emphasize different areas at different times so i could get a load of orca hunters and then think actually most of the orca cards are out now i can start flipping them over turn them into weapons which will score me points and then moving on to do something else so look Let's not go crazy. It's a very quick car game. But there was dynamism and more than one direction in which you're building that engine. And all of that creates a bit of a direction, which which you don't get from other games sometimes in the genre. So being able to actually destroy and affect other people's engines, it was a nice little touch. So uh, Yeah. yeah. It, it surprised me how much I then started to care what you were drafting or, or where you were putting your people and, and what Adam was doing and what I was doing and how then that affected me. And I'm like, well, you've got all the seals hunters, so why am I bothering to bother going after them? But next time I get to kill cards in the middle, I'm definitely going to kill all the seals with clubs, but looking them in the eye. <laughs> <laughs> PG friendly. Um, 
The mini expansions was a nice touch. We obviously didn't play with them, but just um, I can see how easily it is added just in terms of extra variety and and interaction, I think, because we mistakenly had some of them in the decks. The, the copy had been played and they'd been shuffled in and we'd taken them out. They looked like they added more interaction between the players, which is, you know... Which, yeah, nice. Chris, any thoughts on Inuit? Again, watching the video, haven't played it. It looked like there was a, a lot of luck and potential for kind of hate drafting and quite a lot of scourge. But again, if you're talking about a game that's quick, then that's going to be fine because you can just go again. I mean, when you say it's quick, what are you talking? Half an hour, 20 minutes? About half an hour, probably, yeah. Yeah, especially if you, you know, that was the first time we've played. So I think if this became your regular filler, you could probably do a game in 20 minutes, I suspect. Maybe, maybe. I think you'd be going too quick if you did 20 minutes because there are there a few decisions to make. It didn't feel that lucky, Chris. There was screwage, but it never felt really serious because it felt like screwage that you had to build up to. And sometimes right. the Scrooge helped you and you can mitigate because let's say I'm playing as the green player and then there's a lot of Scrooge is you're forced to turn over people and take them out of your engine. Well, I'll, I'll just draft a few purple ones because I think you're going to screw me and you're the purple player. And purple cards that are face up are points for you even though they're in my village. So now if you try and screw me, you're costing yourself points while also removing my minus points. So do you still want to do it? Right. So that very small little mechanism makes it a little bit... P-Dog? Because there's so many different ways to mitigate what's happening, that kind of takes away from that kind of feel of hurt in terms of your draft. And to be fair, I played badly. I lost. That was very evident in terms of what we were doing. And did I beat Adam by like a point and he was sure he'd won? (laughs) That just felt absolutely marvellous. So maybe that added to the fact that I enjoyed Inuit more than I thought I would. It's not revolutionary it's not game shattering but it feels like an sdj level i'm setting you up for later chris do you like that a spiel des Jahres <laughs> level sort of a game that you could get out that's well presented that hasn't got a theme that's going to drive sections of society away and you can have fun and it's quick to explain and as you start going you start thinking oh there's a little bit to this so i would recommend into it as a lighter game if i'm honest with you guys so lighter games we're going to smash through a few lighter games here this is going to be the quick section so we're all on the clock and puria is going to start an argument with me with the next game and he doesn't know why (laughs) this is maybe the quickest of the quick games very much a micro game from 2014 namely too many cinderellas and as everyone around this table knows we all want to be a princess once in a while i am one (laughs) It's a small deck of cards with a variety of princesses on. Some might be blonde, brunette, uh, big shoes, small shoes, likes beer, likes wine, various criteria. Everyone's simply dealt four cards with some cards being taken out. On your turn, you simply choose and play one of your princesses. Each princess at the bottom also has a particular rule associated with it. So, for example, a princess might say, the Cinderella we're looking for can't be blonde. So... Uh, If that was to go into effect, every person's Cinderella who's blonde would in effect be out of contention to be the one and only Cinderella. Everyone has a yes and a no vote. So there'll be a simultaneous vote for the group with the wrinkle being that everyone can only use their no vote once. So once you've committed to that... Same as game selection on games day. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) 
you are then committed to basically authorizing and letting through every other rule. As you play, you will dwindle down the possible selection of Cinderella's the more rules come into the game. Certain other things happening, but in essence you'll be left with one card in someone's hand which will be viable given all the rules on the table, possibly several, in which case they're simply ranked from high to low. And we are talking from very much pretty Cinderella all the way to uh, Cat, I believe, with a very enticing wig. Uh, It is... um, uh, not a complicated game. It's really short. It's in no way anything serious, but I, I found it really charming. The artwork was nice, if somewhat ridiculous. I strongly suspect the original Japanese version of this game might have suited that endearing style a bit more than um, the US and UK publishers. I played on the train. It was very love lettery in a very good way. Chris, have you played too many Cinderella's before I bring up my beef with Puro? The thought of you bringing up your beef with Perio has uh, put me off my stride. Um, <laughs> All right, you sit there and this, think is about this. Is this, <laughs> this Perio as he's dressed as a Cinderella? Or, or what are we this talking This is why I make Perio dress like a cat and then put a wig on him. <laughs> <laughs> and then raise your beef. So, family show. Um, I'll beep that out. Carry on. <laughs> um, yeah, so, I don't know. It's, it's, it's funny now. I mean, you had that fantastic sort of period where there were loads of these games coming out and it sounds like this one came out maybe just shortly after after that rush of them the only thing i noticed when i was looking at oh i haven't played it but um it said it was something like two to four players or something and only good at three or maybe only four players and only takes 10 minutes and i'm sort of like okay it's why why not but i mean is it is it really that limited in scope i think unless you find this game charming there's no reason to buy it it's mechanically definitely not the soundness of games and the artwork it's not, it's not meant poor. to be though it's it's about yeah. interaction but the art looked pretty poor as well or is that was that just a cover I thought it was charming <laughs> <laughs> it's just silly there's no way to defend it you raised it for the podcast you better defend it you better put it out for some reason <laughs> you, just because it's silly and 10 minutes long and mechanically it's not the sturdiest thing ever it doesn't make it a bad game did no did you have fun playing it I did, yeah. And I think that's exactly the point in terms of every other micro game I had has gone. I'd be happy to play the occasional love letter just out of nostalgia. And this was the one occasion where I played a micro game again. And I thought I um, I actually had a lot of fun again. It's exactly what they were supposed to do. You know, five minutes, have fun. Um, and in that respect, it, it did its job I think very well. Maybe they started getting over-designed. People started putting too much onto these micro games and expecting too much from them. They are meant to be played for 10 minutes to fill a gap. Okay. I brought this to your house to play games at least 10 times. And every time I held it in my hand, you poo-pooed me. I was poo-pooing you probably. (laughs) You wouldn't even look at this game. I said, I've played this with the kids. This is quite funny. You'd be surprised how fun this is. And you wouldn't let me open the... I think you kicked me twice. I definitely had water thrown over my head. I was vilified. I had to shave my head. I was put in a sackcloth. Come on. So just another day in the office. (laughs) Yeah, that was all on Platform 2 at Acton Town. (laughs) Yeah, I played back when it came out. I played it a few times with the kids. Amazon's, we all enjoyed it. I thought I was probably going to get more out of it with adults because I thought, actually, there is that much more in it of of the laughter and the fun and stuff. It's not worth 30 plays, but it's worth 10 or 20 of your time. And I thought Two Minutes of the was a really good micro game. I enjoyed it a lot. But I got rid of it because probably wouldn't open his mind and play with me. Consider my mind opened. Yeah, five years too late. Well done. (laughs) On this whistle-stop tour of 18 games, Chris Marling's up next. 
with Whistle Stop by Scott Caputo, came out in 2017. It's a route building puzzle game where you have a board and everyone starts on the left hand side of it. And much like a game like Suro, you are trying to move your pieces across a board and just do something good with them as you go along and hope that other people don't put things in the way that send you off down the wrong track. It's a sort of pick up and deliver game. So each time you one, you've got several trains. Each time you move one of them, it goes to the next possible stop. Hence the whistle stop title. And when you get there, you may get a cube. And if you get a cube, you're looking on, it's very thematic. Um, <laughs> when, when you get these, much like any train game, you're basically moving a little train, little beautiful little plastic train along to pick up cubes and various other places will score you points. So somewhere might need three different particular. I don't even know if they call them different things. I don't know if they've even bothered calling them something but just the league of six thing where they're literally called green red yellow yeah green blue and red (laughs) red onium and blue onium and so you may need green white and red when you get to a particular place to you know and that will get you some points so if you're trying if you manage to move your trains around and get those ones they move to that spot you will get some points i had looked at it quite a few times for various reasons i'd sort of thought you know what i'm just not going to bother with that and someone was sort of saying, oh, I really want to play this. I've got, brought it with me. Do you want to try it? And I was really, really surprised at how enjoyable it was. The puzzle was like genuinely interested. I was thinking, oh, wow, okay, now I can go that way. So-and-so's gone over there. Oh, that's interesting. And now they've done this. That makes that more hard to go to. And if I put this, this in there, it's going to do something interesting. And yeah, it was sub one hour. And I was like, yeah, I thought it was really, really, really interesting game. It was super hot. Two years ago, wasn't it? It was, I think it might have come out of Origins. And then for the rest of that sort of con season, it was everywhere. People were talking about it in a constantly in media and everyone was bigging it up and saying, whistle stop, whistle stop, whistle stop, whistle stop. Puri, did you ever play it? I did. And I've played a couple of times, including the expansion. And because I was after thinking... the first play of anything, you need an expansion. <laughs> yeah. uh, given my attention span, that's probably not, um, unfair. The expansion i was kind of expecting to to revive the game a little bit but it really as you say has dropped off a little bit and i don't really know why because i think in in terms of the market it was trying to hit it did everything very well as you say we we might look past the um cubes which if i remember from hotel austria uh would be strudel coffee and cake Um, what's hotel austria got to do with it <laughs> the color cues. I, I don't want to know. I don't carry on. Carry on. I'm sorry. I asked. It is a great little puzzle, especially with that little bit of a stock element thrown in. You've got the yep. root building. You've got the kind of conversion, and every time with the board setup being slightly different, you're kind of trying to work out how to be clever. All of that very quick. The teach actually ended up being a little longer than I thought it might for a game that's that short, but. In every other respect, um, this is something that probably deserves to come out a little more than it does. It's something I'll gladly play every time it comes up. Well, that's positive and positive from you guys. I have nothing but uninformed drivel to add, as usual, to hear. It's just... <laughs> that's your job. Right? <laughs> well, good segue. Trains... Is that what it says on your passport? <laughs> Under occupation. On my, on my green passport, because I don't think all you're going to talk about passports at least October the 31st. Anyway... I thought your green, your green passport is just a, a, a string of expletives. <laughs> Hey, mate, it gets me in any country in the world. What can I say? (laughs) Open arms once that passport comes out. (laughs) Anyway, 
because trains are my job and I know it makes absolutely no sense train games have got to work hard for me to play them and whistle stop I, well, I glanced over it obviously two years ago I had a look at what it was about Suro pick up and deliver I actually quite like pick up and deliver games I don't mind Suro I'm just not that fast and there are other games so if you guys pulled it out happy to play it's never really grabbed me and to throw in a BGG comments moment because you know I love them. Apparently, the <laughs> stock system doesn't really work because only the person with most stocks gets points. They get 15, second place gets none from what I read, and therefore someone gets ahead. You just don't even bother competing. But what do I know? I've never played it. Yeah, that's not true. But <laughs> Well, mate, we could just make that the tagline for this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> the Game Pit Podcast, that's not true. Okay, but from train game to train game. Ticket to ride. I'm sure everyone knows what it is. Team Asia, even, has been around for quite a long time, but I had never played Team Asia. Firstly, Team Asia, chaps. Brilliant. You've clearly played it. Uh, I haven't, actually. Oh. And I really like to, because in terms of team games, I did get a chance, just to very briefly segue, uh, Concordia Venus, which I absolutely loved, and Team Ways often a very good way of getting old games out of the closet for me. So, for example, we've often talked about Seven Wonders. I only really play the team game anymore. And for me, Ticket to Ride, um, I probably wouldn't pull it out except if it was something like this. So I'm really, really excited to try it. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, the, the, the thing that several people have said about Team Asia is they don't like Ticket to Ride for whatever reason, but they enjoyed playing Team Asia. And that's you, you don't get a better recommendation than that, I don't think. Well, it's the only recommendation you're going to get in this particular segment. <laughs> and I love oh, team really? games. I love Team 7 Wonders. I love, so I, playing in a team is my happiest thing, be it in computer games, board games, whatever it might be. Even sports itself. Ticket to Ride is not a team game. <laughs> it just isn't. And as much as it's a shared experience, and I had a nice time, and we were chatting and doing stuff, we obviously can't chat about the game myself and my partner, in terms of mechanically, the team aspect added absolutely nothing. So you, you both have tickets, right? And you can show each other one ticket, and that's in a shared area where you can put shared cards. Every time you draft cards, one goes in your hand, one goes in the shared area. So you can sort of say, look, I'm collecting blues. Maybe I want to go on this blue route, or maybe I want you to go on that blue route. But you can't say that, but you're getting the idea of what you're doing. But instead of taking your action, you can just put your destination tickets back down in the middle. Do that. Why wouldn't you do that? <laughs> now everyone knows what you're both trying to do. Now there's no misunderstanding. Now all the team aspects gone out. I couldn't believe that was in the rules. Well, so they went, oh, and you can spend one action. To put, you can do what? You can just put two destination cards. So they can see what I'm trying to do. Yeah. I didn't do it because that would just completely ruin the game for me. Not only from that, though, but in doing the actual game itself... All we ended up doing is, uh, oh, yeah, I take a red because I need a red, and then uh, oh, there's, I'll, I'll give you that orange because that's clearly where you're going. Oh, yeah, and I take, and it wasn't a team game. There was no cleverness. I wasn't setting anything up. The draw of the colour cards is too random. So it's not like I can do something clever and be like, ah, if I take that white, then I know that that pink's coming so they can eat. I'm just doing what I do if I was playing single, which is just take the white, take the black, take the white, take the yellow, take the yellow. My thought process was almost in no way different being on a team than it was playing solo. What I would say to that is, rather than think of it as a team game, what you should think of it as is an anti-team game. Because <laughs> Go on. You, you guys on, on this, I mean, you, you guys are, are, are embarrassing defenders of games such as Firefly, where the game is absolutely <laughs> dreadful, but your defence your defense of the game is, it tells a story, 
and it feels like the universe and all that, which is, you know, it's an argument that's up to you. That's fair enough. Well, with me, with teenage, I mean, I know you're talking about your particular experience, but I spoke to several people over the weekend that had played, I presume, in your games that have been in various games. And as soon as I sort of said, oh, have you played anything? Several people, the first thing they said was, oh, we had a game with Team Asia. The next thing they said was, it was hilarious. And the third thing would be, oh, so-and-so and so-and-so were just so funny because they were getting so angry with each other because they didn't get, they got it wrong and they didn't know what they were doing. And one of them kept putting things down and the other one was screwing it up. And then you talk to the other person in that team and they'd be saying the same thing. Yeah, oh, I just totally didn't understand what they were doing. And it was so funny. It was probably from the people I spoke to that played it it was probably the game that was that had the longest stories coming out of it and it's it's a family game with no theme and it was getting the you were just hearing these hilarious stories and they were telling them with a smile on their face so for me the game succeeds that's it the game that's that's it right winner given i haven't played this i think the only way to resolve this is the two of you back in the jelly pit and we'll find it out later. <laughs> Bring it on. <laughs> One of us is disappearing somewhere, and I don't know who and where. Okay. <laughs> what I'll say is that, admittedly, I spent 90% of my time whinging about the mechanics there. My opening line, to go back and give it a slightly more weight, was, we had a fun time around the table. Precisely. It was a fun experience. It was shared and we were all doing stuff. And, and afterwards, I was paired with Nathan and we just completely didn't click. But we were laughing. There was no like, we were, and afterwards we were chatting about it. He was like, I was trying to do this. And I was like, oh, I was trying to set you up for that. And yeah, we had a chat about it. But that's because I'm doing something which is familiar with people that I like. So therefore, I mean, that's almost, I guess, the heart of a fun time gaming. And at that point, the game maybe is not that important. Because mechanically, I was hoping for something clever and something added to Ticket to Ride, which made the team aspect worth it. And it didn't give me that. It gave me a fun gaming experience, though. I know we're talking about Team Asia, but I would like to point out that the flip side of the board, because it's a two, there's two maps on it. The other side is called uh, Legendary Asia. And that is a fantastic map if you like Ticket to Ride, especially if you like playing two player, because I think it's only maybe two or three players. It's a really fast map because you have the normal amount of trains, but a lot of the routes are meant to be through mountains and they sort of took damage or, you know, whatever was they were trying to build it. So each time you build one of those routes, you discard one of your extra trains. So it's much quicker because you're not placing as many as you usually do, but you're still getting points for them in a kind of clever way. It's very nasty map. You know, you're always getting in each other's way. So... As I think anyone, if you, if you like Ticket to Ride, I think the Asia expansion is one you have to have because the team version is hilarious and takes it up to six players and the legendary Asia is brilliant for two or three players. You've talked me into almost buying this expansion that I didn't enjoy that much <laughs> <laughs> because Rachel loves Ticket to Ride and plays loads on the app, but a good two or three player map sounds good. And then for the team thing, I, I will play it again. I just now have different expectations. Okay. Puria. A weird card game. What is this? Yeah, I think we're going to have to start this one with a police report because I'm pretty sure that somewhere in Germany, Amiga has got four Germans locked up and forces them to publish a twist on a ladder game once a year to, to, <laughs> to get them. Okay, we'll inform the German authorities um, immediately. So well, the game we're talking about in this instance is Kras Kariet. I really should be able to pronounce that. <laughs> you think um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
which was published last year. It's a three to five player game and it really is half ladder game, half shedding game. So players receive a hand of cards. First to go out stays in, mainly because there's no points in this game. You're simply trying to stay alive. So there are no winners, just one loser. You have three lives. Uh, the last to go out in a round, you will lose a life. The really unique thing about the game, and probably the driving mechanic, is the fact that when you receive your cards, you are not allowed to reorder them, very much in line with uh, Bonanza. Which means, in terms of building sets, so um, you're trying to do a, a street of one, two, three, or you know, two threes, whatever um, works. You're trying to play cards out of that hand to then rejoin other cards together to form better sets. It's a very different way of thinking for a ladder game, and especially for people who play a lot of them. So, uh, in line with Tom's rules that you should always own n plus one ladder games. Uh, or card games. This is a very different one. It's not perfect. Felt in some ways that three lives was actually maybe a little too many. Felt the game dragged out a little bit, especially because you're only really looking for one loser. And I think some of that entertainment comes um, just as quick with two lives. But it made me think differently. For anyone who enjoys ladder games or climbing games like clubs, I think this is a nice little game to to try. I know it's not always your thing, Ronan. Any thoughts? I was worried that you just pick up those cards and you've got a lack of control because they fall as they fall. Yeah, you've got those pickups you can put in and slide somewhere. So I was worried there. I was thinking, you haven't got much control in this. And then it dawned on me, that might mean that I have a chance because I'm so (laughs) bad at that game. (laughs) And that maybe you won't have to write an AI for me for this one, bro. (laughs) That AI is is, is valid as always. (laughs) Did you hear about this AI, Chris, for ladder games? I didn't know. So we were playing clubs and... After four or five rounds or whatever of the worst club's performance ever, Lloyd wrote me an AI. And the AI said, right. step one, think of what you want to do. Step two, do the opposite. <laughs> so I started doing it and I started doing better. <laughs> I had, I've got a mental block on other games, let me tell you. Any thoughts, Chris? I was just going to ask, quite a lot of card games come out each year. Would you say this replaces anything? You know, it sounds like it stands out for the not being able to order your cards which, you know, obviously isn't a new idea, but it might be new in, in ladder games. Would you say it's, it, you sort of, would you pick this up and go, oh yeah, this is a keeper. It's going to knock something else off the shelf. Or is it just kind of, eh, it's fun as a novelty, but you might as well wait until your crazy friend who's got every card game in the world lets you play it a couple of times and then you're done. That's how probably it feels about every game in the world, though. So that's not a fair question. (laughs) No, but I mean, how many people have you met who have half a dozen ladder games? It's either people like Tom who own dozens and dozens. And for them, the variety is really what it's about. And um, for those kind of people, it's a no-brainer having this game. For those who own one ladder game or two, it's probably clubs and teach you. Yeah, that'd be the obvious ones. Yeah, there's no way this is going to replace any of those classics. And it's it's probably not designed to. So it really is only for those looking to try something new and novel. Okay, that's Kraskret. 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 I was pretty good at that. Okay, I'm going to give myself a pat on the back while Chris tells us about a party game. Yeah, which is rare for me. And... Fun or happiness or shared time? Yeah, no, yeah, no, no, not things I ever think about when I think about designing games. Yeah, we noticed. Yeah, I was going to say, Pori, if you're looking for a, a really good uh, micro game, there's one Empire Engine I would suggest. You might want to check that one out. 
I actually like Tempura Engine. Can you not bring it up, please? Can you bring up some of the other ones? <laughs> Sorry, mate. Sorry. So, yeah, so I'm going to talk about just one, which is Eric Azagari, and it's 2018, and it has just been nominated for the Spiel des Jahres because that's how on point we are. Spiel des Jahres? Why, if only someone had led you into that earlier. <laughs> well, absolutely, yeah. And if only someone had let me into that 14 games and two hours ago. <laughs> Concentrate, people. There are threads throughout this episode. <laughs> Yeah, it's just like Game of Thrones, but um, so although <laughs> spoiler although free, this much, yeah, this is much better than the end of Game of Thrones. Oh, Chris, I haven't seen it. Shut up. <laughs> so, if you think about word games such as taboo or trap words, where you're trying to guess a particular word, but there are restrictions on how people can give you clues. This game, Just One, boils that down into a very compact little game and also makes it co-op, which is quite nice. So what this the very simple premise of the game is one person has a card in front of them that everyone else can see except them. It will have several words on that card. The person will say a number which will match one of those words. Then everybody else is going to get their dry erase marker and they're going to write on a little plastic thing what one word, a single word that hopefully will give me a clue to what my word is. They are then going to compare those words that they've written after sort of keeping them secret till they've all written their word. Any that match get discarded. And then any that are individual get turned around and face me. And then I have to guess what my word is. So it's a very simple twist on a very, very old theme, but it works absolutely brilliantly. I was I was blown away by how much fun it was. I think we played it with seven people, six or seven people. You know, some people knew each other, some people didn't. And yeah, we had an absolutely excellent time playing it. By definition, that makes this an activity in my book, <laughs> given its co-op. But an activity I actually enjoyed very much as well. It's surprising how well that simple mechanic turns into a lot of fun. That very simple puzzle of being unique, while still not losing the plot. I find it especially hilarious when everyone's tried to be so cryptic as to not collide with anyone else. We had a fantastic example of that where the word, I think they say there were seven people, the clue was climb, and three people put teach you. Only, only at lobster the word climb. Only at lobster or gathering of friends. That's right. Me and someone else chose ascend. So the poor person that was guessing had one word to choose from, which I can't remember what it was, but it was just, you would never have got it in a million years. But <laughs> but that's but that's the joy of the game. You just have those moments, you know, but yeah. This was going to be really quick, by the way, because I was about to say, I've never played it, but I see it on Dice Tower tonight. It looks fantastic. I get the whole idea behind it. And the next time that I have a family gathering, I will bring along just one. I'm literally just waiting to buy it for a point where I know I'm going to use it. But to stop us from moving on very quickly... What are you talking about? It's an activity, not a game, because it's co-op. It's not... What? Only in the sense that, like several of these games, no one gives a toot about the score, right? Did you guys score in your game? We did. What? But but the only reason we did, and I, to be honest, I'm pretty much in agreement with you, but you play 13 cards. So, you know, the maximum score is 13. And we just kept getting them right. So I think we got up to about 11 before we had our fail. So it was only exciting in the respect of score because we thought we were going to max it out. 
I mean, there are there are lots of boring arguments about what's a game and what's a yeah. what's an activity and everything else. And and I and I do see your point. I really don't care, honestly. It's a great game activity, whatever. It was it was a lot of fun, and to Absolutely. be honest, it's mecha- yeah. It's- I, I was just using it as an opportunity to pick on you, Puria, for your uh, your random utterings. <laughs> okay, yeah, let's get him. <laughs> That's why he's on here. <laughs> the next one we are going to go over quickly. I'm going to get your guys' opinion on it and then say why I've raised it. And it's Cryptid, the 2018 Osprey game. Got people who listen to the podcast will know that I like Cryptid a lot. It's the uh, deduction game whereby this uh, modular board of six tiles. They've got hexes on there. the different types of terrains, different structures. Everyone gets a different clue that tells them where this thing you're looking for, this Cryptid, which is a monster you're looking for, can be living. And between all the clues, between the three, four, or five players, in whichever the setup is, and there are literally hundreds of setups, there's only one hex on that board, which is the right answer. And by asking questions of each other, you're deducing which one is the correct hex. And the first person to guess it is going to win. First, I'm going to canvas the table and say, Puria, thoughts from Cryptid? I was so surprised to see how many times it came out. And you've stolen my point. Your thoughts on Cryptid, though? (laughs) (laughs) Love a good steal. Um, It's surprising, because I'm not really into deduction games. There's very few alike. I think it's the fact that this is one of those few games that's managed to boil it down into something very, you know, mechanically very simple, but from a puzzle perspective, still very intriguing. So it's it's something that it's actually grown on me. I think I was a bit more grumpy the first time I played this, but the more I play it, the more I like it. And um, I'm not surprised that it's kind of been a slow sleeper hit in terms of people discovering it. So I'm surprised you say you don't like deduction games with the number of times you made me play Zendo. Oh, I never made you play Zendo. You made me play Zendo a lot. I think you're thinking of Lloyd. Um, you, you mistaking were... me in height <laughs> and stature. <laughs> I never mistake my good-looking men. How dare you? Chris, your thoughts on Cryptid? Okay, so as I start to talk, you're already going to know what I'm going to say because I'm going to say things like, it's beautifully produced. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, the rule book's great. <laughs> it, it, it looks lovely. A good weight. People, People, people really enjoyed it that I was playing with. It's it's a really cleverly designed game. There's nothing wrong with it, apart from the fact I wanted to pull my teeth out after about five minutes, and I was so so bored. But the problem was we had the rules explained to us, and it was like, okay, it's a very quick game. It's a real, you know, it's just quick and snappy, and you do a thing, and you you make a choice, and that will narrow down the decision for everyone else. It's like, okay, that sounds good. I like it. Deduction is an, an interesting idea for me. I think it's very hard to do in board games, and so I'm always interested to see new versions. There was five of us, I think, playing. Two people had basically decided that they were going to work, even after everyone had maybe given one clue, they were going to sit there and before they said anything else, they were going to work out every single space on the board that it could possibly be left so that they could then ask the perfectly best next thing. Then we waited, well, definitely more than five minutes, potentially 10 minutes for the next person to have their second go of the whole game. Chris, I'd read out my clue at that point and then start taking the books off everyone else and reading their clues out. (laughs) The person after that also took five to 10 minutes. all the way during it they were saying things like uh, oh okay so so and so so it can't be that one and mm, well it couldn't be over there could it because that because i know what his is his is the next deduction is going to be where is this cube (laughs) because it's going to be put somewhere (laughs) which orifice is my snooker cue in 
What? I hate the players, not the game, man. And again, I'm not hating the game. It's clearly a well-designed game. All I'd say is it's going to be a Marmite game. And I think you need to explain to players before you start playing it exactly what it's all about. And you either need an egg timer or everyone goes in there knowing that you're all going to take forever or you're going to play it a bit more lightheartedly. I was looking forward to a Chris rant. Good. With <laughs> <laughs> he, he was very restrained there. Listen, this game has You're taken longer welcome. than 40 minutes, all right? Someone at that table is getting shouted at. <laughs> this is what happened this weekend. We were looking for a game. Rob Rum was there, and he said, I'm looking for someone to teach me cryptid. I said, no problem. I'll teach you cryptid. Take, take me five minutes to teach you. Not, really? Yeah, cool. Five people straight away. We sat down, and one of the players sat down and went, oh, I've heard bad things. I've heard this can take like two and a half hours. And I made him a solemn vow we would be done in under 40 minutes. He's like, how? Because we're not... Just guess. Just guess. It's just a game. And Ronan, I think we were done in 40 minutes. The only problem was, was that was two people taking two <laughs> Three turns. <laughs> and everyone else just sitting there going, we could set something up on another that table. That is definitely not how this rolls. <laughs> put, put a cube on the board now. And everyone got it very, very quickly. That's how we were going to play the game. And everyone loved it. It was myself and Rachel, three new players. All three of them got their phones out and ordered cryptid. Then I taught another table with four new players. Two of them bought the game. And that probably is how it suddenly started appearing everywhere there was two copies brought down and those two copies then went into rotation and were on the tables almost constantly it's remarkably similar to our experience because three players immediately got their phones out and just went on facebook i've got i've written down here that i think cryptid is a classic game and i think cryptid will last and i think cryptid will be coming out in 10 years time at cons i've already solved your ap problem anyway go on I'm going to introduce the little catapult from uh, Carcassonne from <laughs> I hope I haven't sounded miserable about the game because it, everything about it seems very clever and very well made and the rules are tight as. But yeah, just you've just got to play it with the right people. So we'll go into one before we, we sort of round off with some of the, uh, the heavier hitters. One other, Emporia, uh, it, it couldn't be lighter than this game. Worth every penny. Every penny that I paid for it, free, namely. And in fact, just to give the context here, we have a free raffle every year, which I have failed to win 16 events running. So We haven't was... had the raffle for 16 <laughs> events. <laughs> Close enough. He's not bad. We had it for about uh, six. It feels like it. Um, <laughs> Is it really only six? The raffle, yeah, because it's when we, uh, when we moved hotels and we had to guarantee the rooms, that's when we brought in the charge. And then we were like, well, what are we going to do with all this money? Because we had to guarantee people would book the rooms and not pull out on us all the time. And that's when we created uh, the raffle. Okay. So, yeah. That's funny because I've only ever gone into it twice. Because first couple of times I thought, oh, I, I review games and I get sent a lot of free stuff. So I don't really want to enter it. And then people sort of said, oh, you should enter anyway. And then I won twice in a row. And then I thought, I'm definitely not entering anymore. And now I'm part-time organizer. So um, so I don't get to be in it. So, yeah, two wins Nice, two for two, hundred percent. I've I've never right. won. Poya, how are you doing? So, yeah, thanks. Impact is how I'm doing. Thank you very much. <laughs> See, it was free, and it's a game called Impact, and that's as much as we know. Right, Impact is in fact the re-implementation of Strike from 2012, which the I game understand. you thought would never need to be re-implemented. Yes, which I understand is a bit of a hit in certain circles, especially. Um, on some other not-to-be-named podcast. You can name Roland Dyson taking names. I don't um, mind. Yeah. 
Tupperware perennial favourite. Uh, a game that has, as far as I'm concerned, never. Well, I've never really spotted it to be honest, because it's not really something we take to to a noisy hub. Whereas, in fact, that's exactly where it should live. Impact is basically the same game. So for those not aware, strike, you have a bowl or rather a tray you throw your dice into. Any values that are the same get come back to you. And uh, you're basically trying to stay in the game by keeping dice. So anytime you have unique values in the dice pool, that's bad for you. Impact is exactly the same game. Unfortunately, slightly less appealing in terms of the production, mainly because I think the tray is smaller, which, which is a little less fun to chuck stuff into, but introduces powers, I guess. Each side is unique with a particular symbol associated with the power. So as you get, for example, maybe two lightning strikes, that will kick off a particular increasingly novel and hilarious way of um, dealing with, with the power. It is what it is, I guess. And for a game that probably isn't the best game in the world, I also found you laughing a lot, Ronin. That was crying. Crying. Have we not known each other that I was was six (laughs) quarts of bitter short of enjoying this game? (laughs) The funny thing is, is you talk... Poria, you just said that just one wasn't really a game. And now you're talking talking about a game. There's a brilliant video tutorial of this on Board Game Geek where... (laughs) A guy on his own throws a dice into this little bowl. It's like the saddest thing ever. It's like, <laughs> it's like I don't know, it's like one person playing some sort of like team sport. Sean spent a lot of time making to... that video. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to name names. I cannot defend this game in any way. I don't think I even like it. But I have to say, <laughs> I probably laughed the most and saw the most people laughing playing it. I don't really know what that says, except to say, if it's your kind of, well, dice tower. <laughs> Think of a nice um, word. <laughs> Stop <laughs> saying dice tower instead of a bad word. You mean you sound like you're substituting in dice tower. That was dice tower in bad. Or a right dice tower was made out of that. Uh, I don't really have a filter. It's, it's a mental block for me. <laughs> this reminds me. This reminds me of when we went to. I think one time. I think we uh, saw them at UK Games Expo. Then we saw them at um, Essen, and it was the guys that were selling luchador. And and they were running around with these like you know Mexican wrestling masks on, and they were screaming, and there was always loads of people around the thing chucking dice and like you know rushing around and like, doing stuff, and and then you actually played the game. And it's like there's no game, yeah. there's no game at all. <laughs> I, I roll some dice, and whatever they roll on, that's what happens. Yeah, and then it's someone else's go, and it's like hang on, what, what you can't do anything? No, you just roll <laughs> dice onto a onto a box. This just reminded me of that. I presume that's a roughly correct assumption. Well, the thing with Impact was, the funny thing was that we'd play it, we'd sit there telling people how bad it was, they'd watch it going, oh my God, that's terrible, and then sit down and play it. <laughs> I was like, why do, you, why do you want to play it? You've just told you how bad it is. Well, the reason they want to is because the game that everyone likes when they play it, which is about properly chucking dice and trying to do it properly, is Tumbling Dice. Oh, yeah. It's a brilliant game. I think it was Mayfair that did a Kickstarter for it a little while back. I don't know if they made, well, they must have made like eight copies or something because <laughs> you're sort of thinking, oh, brilliant, this game's coming back into print. But it didn't. They just kickstarted it and then it disappeared again. You know, the, the with um, Tumbling Dice, you know, Tom Vassell brings it to things, but he does it with uh, with different sides of dice, a D8 and a D10, a D12, a D20, and you're choosing which shots to take. <laughs> 
<laughs> so you get that like your like D20 nice, I like the sound of that. Yeah, that does sound yeah. funny. That was genuinely surprising, as you say, how many people got drawn in. We were complaining about it, you were going on about it, but yet we played game after game of it, and there was genuine enjoyment there. Now, I don't know if it was laughing at the game or with the game. It was therapeutic because it was a chance to sit there, throw dice, and then just shout at how bad the game was. When I walked out there feeling like some of the burdens of the world had lifted slightly, <laughs> it's like a stress like, Yeah. Anyway... So, from that load of hot air to the hottest of hottest of cardboard, so hot you can't touch it, flying in the air, wingspan, Chris Marling. Well, it's a game by Elizabeth Hargrave. It was released this year, as far as I'm aware. Uh, So, Wingspan is basically a card-based engine-building game. It's, It's beautifully themed, and you have some gorgeous cards which have various types of bird on them. They've even got their Latin names, if you're into that sort of thing. It's got a really nice little dice tower, which it looks like a, uh, a little bird box, even though the game, I think, has only got maybe five dice, and that's it, and you only roll them about three times in the whole game, but it looks gorgeous. And you are going through the game, adding cards to your tableau, And you have three different sort of habitats that your birds can go into. Some can go into different, some can go into multiple ones, depending on the bird type. And I presume that if you're a bit of a twitcher, then you would, these would all be accurate. You're placing them to do various things. Normally, you're hoping that they are going to get eggs onto the card and they have different types of nest. And there are a couple of shared goals that keep it slightly interactive. I mean, there's a bit more to it than that. But as you might say, I'm I'm losing my enthusiasm. As I'm speaking, I'm slowly nodding. So I think I should probably hand it over to you guys. I feel like that's the arc that a lot of people have told me on during the game where they start off and go, this looks pretty, new idea, it's super hot. Yeah, I'm into trying this. And then after about halfway through the game, they realise that that's it, that's the game done, but they still got half of it to go to run that engine. This is all secondhand. I haven't played it. How does that marry up to your experience? Yeah, that was very much my experience. It seemed to be the experience around the table. I think what's really important to point out here is that it's not a bad game. It's a well-designed game. It integrates the theme as well as you would hope a sort of Euro-style card game would. It looks gorgeous, so it ticks an awful lot of boxes that are important to reviewers. But unfortunately, I, I don't think they're great reviewers because when you get halfway through, you're like... Yeah, everything nuts and bolts itself together beautifully. And if I was trying to introduce Euro games to a bird watcher, this would be the game I'd like to have. But have I seen everything in this game before, apart from the nice dice tower and the little plastic eggs? Yes, I have. So I was kind of having a nice time playing it until I got a little bit bored because I thought the hype is so over the top on this game. If I'd gone in thinking, hey, I'm about to play a kind of average car game, I would have been fine. But it's it's not great at all. It's it's absolutely ordinary. You're being hard on it. Ordinary's five out of ten. That's average. <laughs> all right, well, five out of ten then. That's why I, actually, I think that's actually what I rated it. But that, what I'm saying is, I mean, you're saying like reviewers have said that it's a good game, not very good reviews and stuff. I mean, people are entitled to their opinion on it. It's not for us. The the vast majority of reviews that I I listen to now put a lot of stock into production quality compared to how much they put into whether or not there is originality in the game. And for me, that isn't a good review of a game. That was, that was what I was saying, rather than pointing it on this particular game. 
It's not for us. And it's important within the games industry because twitching is a big thing because of how it's presented, because it's a female designer. And all of this has created a massive ball of hype around it. The fact that it's number 54 in the all-time games on the BGG list, when we look at that list, we expect to see heavier games that we like or games with some originality that hobby gamers like. Now, that's an important point. I don't care how heavy the game is. If there was a really silly, swift little card game in the top 50, I'd be like, you know what? I've played that. It's really good. It's a really clever design. It's really decent. I, I agree. And, and when you see here my top tens of years and stuff, I'll put in light games very happy to, no problem. Absolutely. But there, there needs to be something, some reason within the game for us to look at it and go, number 54 already, what's going on there? And then that creates an expectation for us that this will be something that it isn't. Yeah. I think another part of why all this hype is is because it's one of the very, very few games to have come out between December and April. Yeah, potentially. There's just been no... Like Space Court came out in December. Big hit. This came out in January. Massive unexpected hit. You look at the released emails for these last couple of weeks. There's games of no games of pedigree. There's a few Kickstarters that are fulfilled that are now coming out via web shops. We're just in this crazy barren period where I think that has overloaded some of the attention onto Wingspan. This crazy version selling for two hundred dollars, and you're thinking, well, I would be thinking, why? Why is this game? What's going on? What's and it's creating so much that I think it's inevitable. This is going to suffer from heat death and just collapse under its own weight of hype i think it won't do that well for us because it's not a very original it's game. not it that great <laughs> yeah it doesn't it doesn't have much of an arc it doesn't have any i mean for me it's a bit like race for the galaxy but way less interesting you could sort of argue well you know we're not the audience and it's like well hang on a minute i mean if i was wanting to take people from playing kind of lighter games up a step this wouldn't be the game i'd pick either it's been nominated for the kenner spiel i can kind of see why that is but then the Kennespiel is quite a weird thing. Which I am curious, though, because I, I agree with you in terms of the audience piece, but only to the degree that... Because you're still basically implying that people who've been in the hobby in a long time have to shepherd players into the games. Whereas I don't think that's what's happening. I think there are whole groups of young gamers together discovering the hobby, and they together will find something like Wingspan... And they will have none of the reservations we have. For them, it would be a great produced game. So I think that argument only really happens when you have this mixed bags of like old-time gamers and new gamers. And I think we're probably going to increasingly be the minority in terms of our tastes and, and background in gaming, right? I think that's a fair comment. But at the same time, maybe this is coming from a designer standpoint and someone who works with publishers and someone does does, does development on some games... But shouldn't isn't there a responsibility on the game production community as a whole? And I think you should include reviewers in that. Isn't there a responsibility to always be bringing something new to the table? Is reworking the design toolbox enough to put a game out? I don't know. And I don't think, Chris, I don't think there's any responsibility on anyone to do that. Jamie Stegmeier's responsibility is to his company to sell and games. the people he pays and to make money. And the audience of people who stick on that level of game and will happily play every variety of that level of game is so much bigger than the audience of us who want to play Prehistory and Space Corp and and even Firefly, Sean. <laughs> what he's proven to be very, very good at is hitting that level of market, which is just below us. 
and, and clearly then has got a huge area because there's nothing devastating in viticulture, but it's sold like, you know, like absolute hotcakes. There's nothing new in this in Wingspan, and it's said again, it's selling like hotcakes. He's hitting something that is slightly removed from us, and I think what Puri has said there is the fact that the, the hobby is swelling underneath us, and we are rising further and further from from the the mean in there. And we are more and more being the isolated top of it, where we will look at games and, and the new releases and, and the innovation. The innovation of today will become the big sellers of tomorrow. From a game that has so much hype that it seems to be everywhere, from a company that publishes not that many titles, a game I think that I heard really good things about, similarly, I think, to, to Wingspan, from a company that did have a really good reputation with First Light Publishing is Castell from Renegade Games. And they've almost gone the opposite way to the way Stonewire have gone. And now they're publishing, they seem to have a game out every week. And they're almost flooding the market with their own games. And that's why, to me, I feel like Castell's done the opposite of Wingspan and flown completely under the radar. It's themed around something that I had no idea about before the game came out. It's a Catalonian human pyramid building, human towers, Google it on YouTube, watch it. It's you'll spend thirty minutes looking at them going. It's crazy. It really, it's amazing, doing. isn't it? Yeah, it's just crazy. Just how high they get. And they're doing it on in like market squares and concrete, and there's a seven year old yeah. climbing all the way to the top. And you're there's a little, little kid that's just right at the top that's going to fall over, and everyone's like, "Ah, oh, it's fine." Yeah. And in the UK, the entire country's screaming health and safety. <laughs> It's not got in the title or anything. Um, yes, so uh, it, how you play the game is that there is a map of part of Spain with a, a handful of areas, eight or nine areas in there, and you are in one of those areas, and you can move once. You can train, which is going to allow you to break the rules of building your pyramid, and you can draft some tiles, and the tiles come in numbers 1 to 10, and you have to build a pyramid. It can only be three wide at the beginning, each level above it must be at least one smaller, and you must descend in number. So the tens are at the bottom, they're the biggest tiles, nines, eights, sevens, but you can skip levels and what have you. And after the first two rounds, there then becomes one or more festivals each turn. And for each festival, they're going to be a specific area on the board, and they're going to want specific numbers within your pyramid. And your pyramid must be at least four tall. Now, if you're following along, and they can only start with three wide, then to two, then to one, you'll know it can't go to four tall yet. That's why you have to train. You can expand your base. You can expand the width. You can allow yourself to put take balance, which allows you to put the same number of tiles on top of the same number of tiles. And all of these can be trained up to five levels. So if I had five levels of balance, I could have a layer of three followed by a layer of three followed by a layer of three and so on and so forth and in doing this i'm looking to build towers that contain the numbers that are required for each of these festivals and each number will come up three times over the course of the game in different areas and when i take part in a festival i get points awarded for how tall my tower is and how many times i've included the relevant numbers for this festival in my tower and that creates a base score now that's going to be the base of your victory points at the end of the game, but only your best tower. So if I went to a festival and scored 25 points, I'd be on 25 points. If the next time I scored 22, I'd still be on 25 points until I bettered that score. And then from there, at the end of the game, I'm going to have bonuses for having performed in festivals in various areas of the board, because the more different areas that you get prizes in or have attended, the more points you get for having collected a variety of numbers of prizes, for having the most tiles of a number in a festival, and for doing local performances, because each area has a particular type of 
of pattern of pyramid they wish to see. And as your special action each turn, you can perform in a local area and score points that way. It looks very attractive. It's got similar pastel colours to Wingspan, in fact. <laughs> Keep drawing back to that. You're drafting a tiny little engine. What really sells it for me, and it almost... I don't know whether this is going to come across fairly well or not, but we played it four-player. Myself and Rachel played before we played with another couple. They had a baby they were looking after. I stole a baby, baby Arthur, and I looked after that baby while we were playing. And we played a 75-minute thinky Euro in which we all felt like we were interacting and having a puzzle and looking at and seeing who's going to which festival, where can I nick in and get some cheap points, while looking after a couple of babies with very little downtime, and it all worked. And this is the fourth time I've played Castell. And I thought actually after a couple of plays, I might start getting bored with it. But I'm seeing more and more in it. And it is lasting and lingering up to this point. Apuri, you have played Castell with me. Any thoughts? I think I really resonate in terms of the interaction, actually, because it's unlike some of the other games we've talked about. It's not just an interesting puzzle, but it's an interactive puzzle. You know, what you decide to do in terms of chasing something, a particular area, very much affects my choice in a positive way. So I'm, you know, am I going to go compete with Rachel over here? Or actually, Ronan seems to be very good in that. Might try and stay out of the way, combined with the ability to kind of build this engine in terms of the type of tower I can build, trying to make an efficient way through all the areas. It's a lot of thinky stuff, but again, without onerous rules overhead. So I think it reaches that balance really, really well. And I think maybe to your point earlier, Renegade have slightly done themselves a bit of a disservice in terms of the amount of games. They they kind of lost that bit of hype train that they had in, in terms of very much a uh, fan base like maybe Stegmaier has. And, and they seem to have lost some of that with, with the kind of increased schedule they've, they've put out. You know, on your recommendation, I actually bought this and, and I'm really, really liking it. So I think it's something people should keep an eye out for. So as someone that hasn't played it, when I was like looking at the videos for it, it's a great little theme. As you say, it's a thing that everyone should watch on YouTube and check out. But for me, it's almost going back to the whole wingspan thing. It's like, what is this introducing that I haven't seen before? And it sounds to me as if the point scoring is where the real cleverness of the game lies. Is that is that accurate? It is the way that these mechanisms interlink and the fact that it's so tight and it's surprisingly tight. You're going to want to train, but there's each area, there's there's a wheel that spins round and makes different training available in each area. And if you play the advanced version, there's no sort of all areas thing. So it's not easy to train. But as well as being in the right area to train, you also need to be in the right area to draft the numbers. Because if you're collecting sixes, every second round, more tiles come out, but they only fill up to five in each area and they won't all be taken. So there's not that many tiles coming out. And also, though you need to be in the right area for the festival that you've planned to be at because you're collecting those sixes and you've trained your balance today to put two levels of sixes. And it's the whole simple mechanisms and the way then they link into scoring because I don't want to go to a festival in the same area twice because then the tokens I get are worth less to me. I get more by doing poorly at a festival that's in an area I haven't been to yet. Right, yeah. But if I go to that area, it's all the way to the north but the tournament that I'm really looking to build my big tower score in is in the south. Have I got enough movement to get back for that south tournament? And, you know, it's it's all very simple decisions, but the way that it all links together and suddenly Puri's gone ahead of me in turn order, he's taken those sixes from that area, and I'm like, ugh. So the only sixes left on the border are over there, but that means I can't go to this festival. What should I do? Should I do a local performance? 
it's dynamic, the puzzle that you're doing, and it's really tight, but never frustratingly so. There's always a way out. Yeah, it's, it really sounds like a game I want to try. Quite a lot of the ones we talked about tonight, actually, I've, I really want to get what really want to get into. It does sound really interesting. So if you just talked about the mechanics, it doesn't sound very interesting. But then if you talk about the theme, it's like, yeah, I love a bit of extra theme. And it looks like the artwork and that is nice. As you talk about the interaction, it's like, oh, okay. So I'm doing kind of quite standard things that I'm used to doing in other games. But where the game really comes to its fore is oh, okay, I've got to be in the right place at the right time. I've got, I've got to worry about what everyone else is doing. I've got to do stuff where I need to do it. So, yeah, no, it sounds really interesting. I like the sound of it. It's got the classic Euro appeal of simplicity and interaction without direct attacking. And it feels like the best of early 2000s Euros in a nice package with a nice theme. And it doesn't take forever. Yeah, no, sign me up. I, I definitely want to try this one. Just to add, in terms of the options, I think it's nice because you're typically in a territory, which means your options for that particular turn are slightly constrained. Not your strategy of the whole game, but there's only a couple of things I realistically want to do on my turn. It kind of cuts down a bit of the AP for me as well, which means you get that nice flow of people kind of playing on their turn, knowing roughly what they want to do. Is movement restricted? Because, for example, a game like Altiplano... I enjoyed the challenge of that game, but the way you moved around and kind of limited yourself because you couldn't move very far felt like a frustrating thing on top of the stuff that was meant to be what was enjoyable. Do you have to like plan three turns in advance as in if you want to be on a particular area or can you just get to everywhere easily? You get one move each turn. You get over the course of the 10 rounds, you get seven or eight bonus actions, which you can choose when to take them. You take one each turn. Your bonus action can be an extra movement, meaning you can get anywhere within two rounds. But the bonus action can also be that's how you draft an extra tile, or it can be um, how you do a local performance to score extra points. So in order to have flexibility of movement, you're sacrificing something else. Right. Okay. Yeah. Another nice touch. It is. It's Castell. A few people, I think the people that played it, the reviewers that played it back when it came out last autumn, it was very positive, but I don't think there was enough buzz. And I, this is my attempt to kickstart that buzz again and say, this is really one to check out. If you see it around, it's a good game. Ronan. Yeah. You can consider my buzz kickstarted. <laughs> wow. With my beef and your buzz, this is all getting very excited. Okay. We've got three more to go, people. Thanks for sticking with us. We're going to finish these off. And Puria, you're also going to talk about a pretty pastel Euro. Yes. And in line with Ages Past, this is Gingopolis that was published in 2012. This is from Xavier Georges, I believe. Georges. Yes. I'll let you Belgium, French it up right? as you feel. I think at the time it never really got republished, so it had a bit of a limited release, and it was very hot, if I recall, in terms of the people who were playing it, and then just, I think, because people couldn't get hold of it, it kind of died out a bit, but it's something that kind of just pops up every once in a while, and I think the people who owned it, uh, a lot of them kind of, um, the ones who liked it at least and kept it, kind of liked bringing it out again, um, I think in this instance we played Nathan's copy, now I think unlike Castell, which feels like a classic game, this feels dated. The game is is area control with city tiles. Uh, You have three resources, currencies being victory points, you have supply of new tiles, and you kind of have generic resource tiles. And all three of these you kind of have to manage in terms of your economy. You're building up tiles, 
you're connecting city tiles of the same color, which is one of three. And then in terms of the number of your own resources you have on top of those, you kind of have an area control scoring thing happening. I think one of the criticisms that kind of gets levied of it straight away is the bit of randomness you get from the tile draw, especially as a new player, it felt really punishing in terms of getting poor tiles. It's also a game where you will just get bewildered by the kind of what you're trying to do. It's it's quite unintuitive in terms of how you actually want to play, which means if you are going to invest time into it, it takes a couple of games to get going with what you really want to be doing. And for me, it just felt too dated to really put that time and effort in. Yeah, it didn't really grab me the way I was kind of expecting to. I don't know. Ronan, have you played this? Many times. Yeah. This is a game that no one's going to remember this because we've covered it five years ago on the podcast. But I had it. I really liked it. I was one of only a couple of people I knew that had it. So I ended up teaching it every single time. And this game is unreasonably hard to teach. Mm, yeah. <laughs> that thing that you're talking about there, that it's hard to... It's. It's. I swear... Once it clicks, you'll be like, why was this hard to learn? <laughs> Once you've played it a couple of times, you go, oh, yeah, it's just you can spread out or you can spread up. I don't know, but there's some cryptic code in the components and the rules in something that they've done that makes a relatively simple game really, really hard to play. <laughs> I've played this a few times on Boitageur and... I've it's our segment for French pronunciation, isn't it? <laughs> it's with, yeah, sorry, if people don't know it, Boitageur is like an <laughs> online gaming platform where you can just go and play like turn-paced games. And it's it's really good, really good. Uh, of course, by my fantastic pronunciation, you will easily find it at <laughs> boitageur.net. Other pronunciations are available. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've played it a few times on there and it is wonderfully odd in terms of it's, you know, you're kind of thinking... It's it's wonderfully unintuitive. It's like everything you sort of think. Well, yeah, none of it's co- none of it's complicated, but it takes a little while to sink in. I think I think it's a really good game, and they didn't sell many copies, but it does keep showing up, and people do like it, and I think they like it for good reason. I think it's a very good game, but I, I would agree with Pori. I think that you're going to struggle to get people that have got so many new games to choose from. I think you're going to struggle to get them interested in this. You can say it, Chris, short attention span. No, 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 (laughs) that is not what I'm suggesting at all. Why why would people go back to old games when there are so many new ones? And if people like a classic Euro, which is turned on its head, but will appeal to the same, I think it's worth a try. I really like it. I think it's a very clever little game. I really like it as well. So you're definitely the minority, Puria. No, um, don't get me wrong. I I did like it. It's just, as you say, it's, it's, it's some- hard to get you. You said you didn't like it. It's, That's why we can't. No, it's something about the learning that put me off. Like that's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's unintuitive. It's weirdly unintuitive, and that's why I got rid of my copy because I was fed up of teaching it. Because I was fed up of trying to say to people, "No, give it. You know, keep going, keep going. This is a good game." And I had so many blank stares, and like, really, because it just seems weird. It's it's just I think that effort barrier I'm not willing to put in. The reason we're having the, it's us talking about this today is because we were talking about LobsterCon and it and the irony is Ronan introduced the episode as this is the one which is in you know it's 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 in April May it's it's nowhere near Essen but so many of the games we've talked about are games that have come out in the last six months or the last year or something and this is a great example of a game where it's got a few champions that will keep bringing it year after year and people keep playing it and do enjoy it. And I do love that about the con, you know, and this is a game where I just kind of wish that somebody I knew was a real champion of it. 
and that they brought it every April or May because I'll always be up for a game of it. So yeah, it's but I think it does still have its champions and I'm I'm glad it has. It's a quirky little number that fills its own little niche. No? No one's going to give me anything back on that. What do you want? Leaving your hanging. Do you want a biscuit? <laughs> I've had enough biscuits, as we all know. Okay. Penultimate game. Now, New Frontiers, Chris, is not Beta Colony, but is from Rio Grande, and they both came out around the same time, and no one knows which is which, surely. Well, this is a Tom Lehman game, which means it's Race of the Galaxy. I was on a panel at a Worldcon once with Tom Lehman. Did he make you look stupid? Or was it well, just you that made you look stupid? I never tell you this story. <laughs> I got asked to go off and do this panel about the future of gaming or something, some sort of thing. And it was this podcast wasn't that old at that time. Well, it's been a couple of years. And I was like, who's going to be on it? There were like, oh, some media people. I was like, all right, great. So I kind of sat there, met a guy from Denmark, so there was someone else, I can't remember. And then this guy walks up and says, hello, I'm Thomas. I'm like, hello, I'm Ronan from the game bit. It's like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah. I said, what do you do? And he said, oh, I design games. I think we designed Race of the Galaxy. <laughs> like, you're Tom Lehman, right? So I, they sat me next to him on this panel. It was my first panel. There's hundreds of people in this room. And I'm like, oh, wow, okay, this is cool, right? Don't, don't say anything stupid. And they put another chair next to me. And the geezer, who I'd been chatting to, who was sort of you know, organising the panel, he was like, oh, this is for Steve. I said, oh, great, okay, oh, nice to meet Steve. And Steve Jackson came and sat down in there. <laughs> <laughs> so I was doing this panel. And I was just people with Steve Jackson on my left and Tom Lehman on my right, trying not to say stupid things. <laughs> wow. Well, if anyway. you're sitting there with Poria on your left and me to your right, you say stupid things. So. <laughs> I, I just fit in. I'm sorry to disrupt your introduction of New Frontiers. Carry on. Well, Race for the Galaxy is my favourite game. I was still apprehensive about playing New Frontiers because... What it does is it takes all the stuff I love from Race of the Galaxy, but then kind of boils it down a little bit by making things available rather than being cards that you draw in your hand. So what New Frontiers does is it puts a lot of the randomness from Race of the Galaxy onto cards that are available to everybody. It uses the action selection system of Puerto Rico. Therefore, if I choose it, I do it, everyone else does it not so well, and then the next person around the table chooses one of the other actions. So it's a kind of mix of the two systems. Have you guys played it? Have you played it, Rory? <laughs> I haven't actually, no. I did play the dice version, actually, just because that came to mind. Um, Roll for the Galaxy. Roll for the Galaxy, yeah. Which which I'm still in two minds about, because I think, like you, I, I just like the original Race for the Galaxy, and I'm... And I'm finding it hard to see much in any of the other variants. So I, I, I was curious if this kind of did anything that really pulled things together again. But by the sounds of it, it's much of a muchness. Before I answer that question, Ronan, have you got anything? I, I, I see a Chris rant, rant coming up. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so, because I know he's played loads of race. I know he loves race. So I hope this is going to be a good rant. Um, uh, this, this, is, this is a personal thing. This is, this is bad reviewing, Chris. You can have a go at me for this. The fact it's a board game version of Race of Galaxy, it uses all the same stuff, kind of puts me off. The fact that it's overpriced puts me off. And I had a falling out with Rio Grande on Twitter as well, so that put me off as well. So I really don't want to play it. <laughs> That is not bad reviewing. That is that is being a critic. That's I'm up there. I like that. It's good. It's all good. It's all good. Having an opinion is good. Rio Grande followed zero people on Twitter, and then like put things out like, "I wonder why this has happened. Why why don't you follow some people and chat and engage, and then maybe you'll find out what's going on in the industry." Anyway, I think I think asking why a game publisher doesn't have any social media presence, I think you could slightly widen that to every. (laughs) 
every single one of them. Some people are very good, you know that. Okay, anyway, Chris, we're delaying the rant. Surely it's a rant. Go on, give me a rant. You know what? It really, unfortunately, sorry, sorry to disappoint. It isn't a rant. What it is, is Race for the Galaxy for people that like Puerto Rico. Generally, the thing about Puerto Rico is the, the real key to the game is trying to guess what other people are going to do and trying to do an action that everyone's going to get to do, but doing it so that you get maximum advantage whilst everyone else gets as little as possible. And unfortunately, what New Frontiers does is it brings that into the Race for the Galaxy universe, but it doesn't really work in the same way as it does in Puerto Rico because you're still really just trying to build your own tableau. And Race of the Galaxy doesn't have the interaction in terms of how you've built up your world in the same way that Puerto Rico does. Because like Puerto Rico has got the, the scarcity of tiles, so you're racing for that, and for trading, yeah, and you're trying to fill up the warehouse and stuff. So exactly. It actually matters when people jump in and out and they can beat you to things, right? Yeah. Whereas are you in Race for Galaxy, has this got the sort of strategic scope where people do different strategies? So It's got the same strategic scope as Race of the Galaxy. So you're either going down a military route or you're going down a trading route or you're trying to make a long game where you're trying to make a lot of points by trading and you know producing and consuming. What it does is the worlds are still very random. So they're in a bag and if you choose to settle, you will take a bunch of worlds out of the bag and you'll pick one of them. But all the developments from Race of the Galaxy are set out on a board much like the buildings are set out in Puerto Rico. So if you choose a development, you can very much pick exactly the one you want. So it's kind of sitting between two stools. So it's kind of trying to take a lot of the randomness out. Because for me, the joy of Race of the Galaxy is I've been dealt a bunch of cards. I've got to do the best I can with them. But the game's only going to last 20 minutes to 30 minutes. So we'll go again and I'll do better next time. In this game, unfortunately, it doesn't have the interesting interaction feels a bit like race and it feels a bit like Puerto Rico but for me it's slightly inferior to both games because both of those games are good for a reason and New Frontiers just kind of ebbs that reason out of it a little bit. From afar I couldn't see a reason for this to exist and I know I've got confirmation bias so I'm probably only taking out the uh, the bits that I agree with what you're saying but it sounds like you're agreeing completely with my my presumptions on this game that I was like this this has been flogged to death you got it perfect, Race for Galaxy. Stop messing with it. I found this overpriced. Okay, good. <laughs> the last game for today is going to be a game that came out a huge hype last year was Root. It won many Game of the Year awards. I spoke about it already. I want to come back and revisit it because when we spoke about it last time, we said it's going to be something we're going to have to talk about again with more play. So, Chris, have you played Root? I haven't. Then we are looking for searing questions. Puria. Do you want one? Do you want one to? before we even start go for it okay this is the most hyped and most apologized for game that i've heard talked about for so long and the reason i haven't tried to seek out a play for it is that the apologies put me off well i got what are the apologies the apologies are every introduction i hear from someone talking about root ends in but so it's like yeah i i, I know the things aren't balanced but and i know they've had to make sixty-five thousand changes since it came out because things aren't balanced but it's really great Games can be butt and still great. I, w- I would say that much. I like big butts. And I- a bunch of balances come out and then they go, oh yeah, but now that's unbalanced something else. And <laughs> So you're waiting for Root, the essential edition. Yeah, and starting to get the feeling that that will never happen. Because it, I mean, it seems we'll like see. a really lofty... Let's see. Let's see. Wait, 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 let's see. Puri, how many plays have you got? 
think I've played twice more since we last talked. What does that mean? So wow. I know I have to remember lots of that. Wow, that's, that's the best yeah. fact of that's the best fact of the episode. <laughs> N Seven less than the number two. of teeth my grandmother um, died with. N right. plus two. Root, root <laughs> cheers, Gloria. <laughs> um, right. Just to your point, Chris, I don't think, especially with the new release of this factions, the fundamental reality I think is that it's not possible to balance the game. The only thing you can do, and I think the only reason the changes are being made, is for the appearance of balance, right? We, we talk about this a lot. People need to feel like things are balanced. The reality is it's not it's, possible. It's player balanced. Yeah. It's what happens in the game, what people go for and what cards they draw affects the balance of the game. And you can be less likely to win depending upon what you've drawn and what other people have drawn. It's the nature of a card game. It's not a Euro game, right? That's that's a short version of it. So that if you have Euro sensibilities around balance, you're just not going to be happy, I think. It will only yeah. feel balanced if you're playing with all experienced players who all understand all the factions. And and that's kind of what... Actually, the reason, one of the reasons why I wanted to bring it back up again, because this is my third player. I played with the Vagabond. You're not playing Root when you play as the Vagabond. I'm not sure the Vagabond should be in the game. I don't, it's, it's just acts as a timer, but there's a natural timer on the game anyway. So I played as the River Folk, and I played as the Cats this time. In this play, the Birds won. The Birds are supposed to be very difficult to play, and very you'll never win them the first play. Well, it was his first play, and he won with the Birds. Now, the reason why they won with the Birds, firstly, he played really well. Secondly, I have never played the Birds, so I didn't fully... I understand how they work, that they create a set of orders, and they must do those orders every single turn and if there comes a turn they can't do them they crash and burn and lose some points and they have to start again so I expected they were crash and burn because that's the only time I've ever seen and everyone always says well they're going to crash at least once they never crashed he played them really well as the cats I presume it was on me to cause them to crash but what happened was I drew a card that was one of the domination cards and that was for let's say it was for the mouse clearings for example all the way through it was in my initial hand I said right I'm going to concentrate on building up strong in these four mouse clearings so that when I pop this down even though they've got to turn around the table they can't knock me out of all four of them because I'll be so strong in those clearings what the eagle person did was create a tableau of cards with just wild cards and rabbit cards in there meaning they are only interested in being rabbit clearings so when they went in rabbit clearings, I didn't care. I'd be like, well, I don't want them anyway. That's not how I'm going to win this game. So I didn't respond to them. And then it, I presume, obviously the Vagabond's got nothing to do with it. They're not even playing Root. I presume it's then down to the Woodland Alliance to do something about what either of us are doing. So because he didn't see that he had to knock the Eagles out of the rabbits, but if he had knocked Eagles out, out of the rabbit areas, then I'd have won the next turn with my domination on, on my Fox clearings. So it kind of was all dependent upon what cards we drew. And it was no no interest to me to stop the birds from winning and getting the rabbit clearings, apart from to stop them from winning. And I'm like, well, you stop them from winning. And for all of that interaction to balance, everyone has to understand. And everyone has to be able to look on the board and go, oh, hold on, Ronan's building up only in these fox clearings. Achilles is going for that. Oh, hold on. Wayne has only got rabbits and birds down on his tableau. We have to attack him in rabbit areas. But it takes a certain number of games for everyone to understand that while the vagabonds sitting around playing their own game. Am I making sense, Puria? The only thing I would caveat that with is that anytime you have someone talk about Root, they're coming from their meta. And I think a game as complicated as Root can have lots of different metas. So in some games, beginner game, oh, the luck of the card draw is really high. Actually, this game, everyone feels like it's nothing to do with the cards. Good play just wins. So 
it's a game that's going to have so many perspectives and opinions on it that I think it's really hard to kind of summarize that. And you need to get a feel for if it's something that you like, especially depending on where you're coming from, right? If you're coming from a coin game, then Root feels refreshingly light on rules, having just tried to play another uh, coin game recently. It brings you a lot of that interaction without a lot of the overhead if you're coming from it other side of the game then it might feel a lot more complicated and the meta is going to feel different so it really is a game that kind of re- reacts to where you are in the hobby and where you're coming from you have to respond to what's happening in each game yeah. after three plays i'm clearly still playing like an egypt because i did nothing about these birds thinking they're going to crash they're going to crash someone else will do something about it oh no they're not they've won i'm enjoying the process so just playing that game of root was fun oh, oh i didn't win okay the fact that it's a two-hour-long game and in the end the winner was kind of, sorry, Wayne, kind of inconsequential. All right, you won. Okay, if you hadn't won, Vagwan was about to win on their next turn and they hadn't either won on my next turn. We were all about to win, weren't we? We all just had a shared process. I don't feel like I've actually played a fully competitive game of Root yet. You know what this sounds like to me? Go on. This sounds to me like what a legacy game should be. A game that has got depth in its factions it sounds like these guys have made this like amazing asymmetric experience where as a group you learn the game as you go along and that as you learn you'll actually find that actually well it's actually pretty well balanced and yeah now I'm playing my faction better I'm going to do better maybe the problem they've got is that they keep tinkering with it and responding to feedback maybe they should have just gone you know what it's ready Keep playing it, and you'll find out that it's all pretty good and balanced. It's the George R. R. Martin problem of over-engagement with your community. <laughs> it, it may well be that. I love a game where you need to learn and play. But, you know, if you play like a game, you know, like a real strong Euro, like Through the Ages or something, first time you play it, you're going to be rubbish. You know, Twilight Struggle, you need to learn the cards. Any of these games, you want to be playing them with people that are on your level. I think that's probably the secret as to why it's so popular. But but the real secret to it also is the fact that your first game is fun. The process is fun. You, you don't feel like, as Bruce said, you don't feel like you're wading through rules. I felt like I was doing stuff. I felt like I had a plan. I got my wood. I made my buildings. I did this. I secured that clearing. In the end, it wasn't effective to win, but I still feel like I played and did stuff. I wasn't stimmied throughout. I think that each faction feels like its own little challenge again apart from the vagabond forget about him (laughs) but you feel like you're doing your own little thing and i feel like i've learned a bit about the game and the fact that it's fun from game one through to probably i can't say for sure because i'm 47 game 50 where you will still be doing things but you'll be doing things on a different level and i think that is what i imagine is going to be proved to be the genius of the design I just think it's probably better for me to wait until it's done. <laughs> It'd be like trying to balance dominant species. It's just not possible because it's so there's so much player interaction, so player driven. Well, if that's true, then give up the game. Yeah, exactly. I agree with you. That's what I'm saying. Give up. Stop patching it. Stop doing it. Leave it alone. Let people play the game. If they want to do house rule a card or whatever, let them go and house rule it. Stop worrying so much about giving people what they want. You've given them something great. Leave it alone now. Move on. Design the next one. So we're not going to talk about balance of the four new factions coming out? Four! <laughs> Is it four? Or it's lots of I have no idea, mate. Uh, are there any vagabonds in there? <laughs> I'm pretty sure you can have so, a vagabond-free game. So you're right. uh, Maybe in six months' time, I'll, t- I'll talk about Root again after a couple more plays and we can see where I'm going. And I'll just make this a feature. We'll go on for 10 years talking about Root. Maybe. 
Okay. Anyone else, anything else to add about your LobsterCon 17 experience? I would be very pleasantly refreshed to see less red velour, but that's a dream too far. <laughs> uh, okay. What you get up to in your bedroom is your own business. Okay. Maybe change the number you call. Thank you, Puria. Thank you, Ronan. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much for listening, everyone, and we will catch you next time on the Game Pit Podcast. We are a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. For all your gaming needs, head across to thedicetower.com. To keep up to date with us, check us out on Twitter mainly, but also on Instagram and Facebook. If you want to email us with your comments, it's thegamepitpodcast at gmail.com. Head to our BGG Guild. Apologies for the gap in programs. More programming following on very shortly, be it a preview or a review of UK Games Expo, depending upon how our schedules work out. I don't know, but we'll catch you next time. Thank you so much for listening. Music by E. Aaron. Oh.